This is False Start, a college football podcast for everyone and everyone else. I'm John Bueller, staff writer at fansided.com. Joined today by a man who went to church on a Friday, saw his team win on a Saturday, and definitely reported as eligible. Cody Williams, senior editor, fansided.com. How the hell are you? Doing good, man. Glad to be back in a land where uh, my internet actually works, where I can actually join you. Thanks again for holding it down with the Jason Derulo pod. Uh, You crushed it, but glad to be back on the show. Yeah, good to have you back. I like talking to myself, but it's not the same without talking to you. I'm like, I feel like I'm a lot less funny, a little more sad. (laughs) Yeah, you know, the vibes seem to be a little low. I, uh, But I think the vibes are going to be high today after what we saw uh, last night in the Orange Bowl. (laughs) Yeah, and after what we saw on a special edition of Monday Night Football as well for you. (laughs) I don't even know if my vibes can be high after that because it seems like everyone's just discounting the fact that the Cowboys won the game. But that's okay. You know, the Lions tried to run the trick play and the refs refs were not having a single ounce of it. I will tell you though, I think all of Detroit has is taking the L a lot better than anybody who works for the athletic or who loves Florida State football. That was oh, yeah. just some pathetic crap I've ever seen. Just like take your L. At the end of the day, like the winners, they they write history because it's his story. Like mm-hmm. that's how it goes. Like nobody cares if no time for losers because we are the champions of the world or the Orange Bowl or the uh, Week Seventeen Monday Night Football game on a Saturday night. Yeah, you know, Monday Night Football on a Saturday is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, Freddie Mercury would never lie to us, so I think we should just go by his gospel. And that's why we named an award after him. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, I like the fact that we're going to start with first and 15, do a little bit of the college football playoff preview. We're delayed a little bit here, but we're going to get this up here right before, uh, you know, the final New Year's Six game on monday but we're going to talk about the rose bowl between michigan and alabama as well as the sugar bowl between washington and texas cody what's your initial thoughts about the rose bowl between number one michigan and number four alabama right now my first thought and i think i think this has kind of been my prevailing thought since the matchup was announced on the selection sunday is that the defenses are by far the two best units that we're going to see on the field in pasadena on monday on monday afternoon And I think it's going to come down to maybe not necessarily which offense is able to break through, but perhaps like which offense is able to limit limit its mistakes the most. Because we saw last year and when Michigan lost to TCU in a semifinal, J.J. McCarthy made some early mistakes and then kind of got things rolling, but they were in too big of a hole to come back from. They tried and they came close, but they were ultimately unsuccessful in doing so. But then on the flip side of that, we've seen, you know, Jalen Miller and Alabama kind of put themselves in some bad spots, maybe not necessarily with turnovers or anything of that nature, but with poor decisions that really put them behind the eight ball. You know, in the tech, in the loss to Texas, Alabama's one loss in the season, Milro threw a pretty backbreaking interception, interception that Texas capitalized on and really just kind of built off the momentum of that to get the win in Tuscaloosa. So I think that. With the talent that these defenses have, with these offensive lines, like Alabama's offensive line has improved throughout the year, but I still think it's a problem area. Michigan's offensive line is good, but it is not the Joe Moore winning award-winning unit that we saw last year in Ann Arbor. So they have taken a step back, and I think Alabama's defensive front can have a little bit of success there. 
So I just wonder which – I think it's going to come down to which offense makes the mistake, not necessarily which offense finds a way to beat the defense because I don't think that's necessarily in the cards in this game. No, it's obviously going to come down to Trench's play. I mean, I really love the Michigan pass rush. I think that's like their game changer. That's the best unit they've got on their team right now because, like you said, the, the offensive line's not as good as it was last year or the year prior, but still really good. Obviously, what we saw out of Alabama – in the SEC championship game, particularly in the front seven, they really had their way with the Georgia offensive line. That was a big reason why they won, despite Jalen Noro, you know, completing less than 50% of his passes, but still looking pretty effective nonetheless. I guess for me, the big thing is I think there's a chance that Alabama just absolutely smokes Michigan. Like mm-hmm. I feel that like Alabama is certainly like they're accelerating into this where I feel that like, Michigan is like slowing down in some capacity. I feel like the level of comp that Alabama has played this year has them really geared up for this. I mean, they just they just played Georgia. They've had to play Ole Miss. They had to play LSU. They had to play Tennessee. The Michigan, you mean you had to play with you know an offense that had to fire its offensive coordinator, and then an Ohio State team that saw its quarterback go in the portal. This would be really interesting if Michigan could do it. This is the year that they can win the national title. But what a terrible matchup for the Wolverines. Yeah, I mean it's you know. Drawing, being the one seed and drawing Alabama as your semifinal matchup seems uh, seems not great. Seems like something that Jim Harbaugh, I mean, we saw the reaction on Selection Sunday when they announced Alabama as the team. That entire Michigan uh, conference room, wherever they were at, groaned in Indianapolis. Like, they did not want to play Alabama in this game. They wanted to play Florida State. We saw why, even if it was a shell of the Florida State team last night. But I do think that... I think the other prevailing thought I have about this game is that it's an under game because you talked about the potential for Alabama blowing Michigan out. And I agree that potential is there with the level of talent they have with the level of comp they seem they've seen this season with how battle tested the Crimson Tide are. But you go back in college football playoff history under Nick Saban at Alabama when the Alabama has had games that have felt like blowouts and that have never felt close, but that the scoreboard hasn't really indicated that. Like you look back at the Cincinnati game, I believe the final for that was 21 to three or 21 to nothing or something like that. Uh, Michigan state, when they played them early in the playoff era, that game that Alabama didn't get out of the twenties in that game, but they completely stifled Michigan state and it didn't really matter. They didn't put a whole lot on the offense. So like, I think there's that's a world where that game happens. But even if it's a close game, I think, like I said previously, it's going to be a defensive battle where the defense is kind of control the narrative. And it's just kind of who breaks through first, who makes the big mistake so the other team can break through, break through first. So I think like the under is probably where I like really see this. I think I think that's a really contrasting style between the two games. We'll get to Texas and Washington here in a second. But like I think in that game, you're looking where. The offenses are probably the two best offenses or two best units on the field. And in this game, the defenses are the two best units on the field. So I think that we're going to see that. But I do think that going to your point about Alabama, uh, Alabama blowout being a possibility, I think an Alabama blowout is a possibility. I think an Alabama close win is a possibility. I think a Michigan close win is a possibility. I don't necessarily think that a Michigan blowout is really in the cards. I think Alabama is too well coached and has too much talent, particularly on the defensive side of the ball and in the secondary for a Michigan blowout to really be in the cards. Do you do you see that as well? Yeah, Michigan's not blowing at Alabama. That's not happening. I think the other three outcomes are certainly within the realm of possibility. But, you know, there was no possible chance that we were going to be going to the Rose Bowl for Antonio's one big holiday for two reasons. One, uh, Antonio hates an under. Mm-hmm. And two, the amount of cost to go there. 
uh, we would have had to sell both of Antonio's kidneys and put him on dialysis. And I don't think that he really wanted that heading into the year. <laughs> no, no, that's not a good way to start 2024 for Antonio, man. But I, I guess the one thing I will say to you, and the one thing that has worried me about this matchup, from if I'm looking at it from Michigan's side, because you mentioned the Michigan pass rush, and I agree that honestly, to me, Michigan's pass rush might be the best single like individual position unit in this entire game. But the one thing I do worry about a little bit is we saw early in that Texas game, we saw it against Georgia when Milrow was having having some struggles completing passes consistently that his legs were the dynamic factor because Georgia's somewhat inexperienced front did not always have their fits right when they were rushing. And so they gave Milrow space to run and his, and we know he's an incredible athlete. And we saw it with Texas where sometimes they got a little loose with their fits. Milrow took off and he had a lot of success with his legs in that game as well. I wonder if Jesse Minner's defense is being coached up on that, or if it's just something that Milrow is such a dynamic athlete, that there's not really a way to combat that. Like, do you think Milrow's legs play a big factor in this game like they basically have all season? Or do you think Michigan has something dialed up for that? I think Milrow's why Alabama wins. This is the deciding factor for me. Because for to beat Alabama, you need to have a mobile quarterback. I don't really know if McCarthy is really all that mobile or mobile enough. He's certainly not Stetson Bennett, you know, Deshaun Watson, you know, Nick Marshall at Auburn. Maybe he could be, but like the fact that Milrow can like completely blow up a well-designed defensive play. If Jesse Minner has like them completely locked up, he can't throw the ball. Saban trusts him enough to not go make like stupid plays, throw the ball away. Like he'll just scramble for like 10 yard gain and move his chains and everything. I just think like it's going to be low scoring. It's going to be very ground centric. And after watching Jalen Milrow in person, like this is, it's going to be really hard for Michigan to stop them. Maybe they could, but I feel like they haven't gone up against a quarterback like that. You know, a guy who's not a bum, stiff, walking trash can, for lack of a better word. No, absolutely. I mean, I am I was looking back over Michigan's schedule. They really haven't faced a mobile quarterback all season. Like, Drew Alar is probably the most mobile quarterback that they face, and Drew Alar is not, like, an elite athlete, especially not on Milrose level. I still tend to – so I haven't actually – you've you indicated that you're going to pick Alabama to win this game. I think I'm actually going against you. I think I like Michigan in this game, and I think my reasoning – comes down to the fact that Alabama and this coaching staff, Nick Saban's obviously been in the spot before. Nick Saban's obviously succeeded in this spot a lot before, but you have Tommy Reese calling this game. Tommy Reese has not had success in this spot. He is not, not well adept at in this spot. We haven't seen him really face the pressure of a college football playoff. The same goes for Jalen Milrow. We haven't seen Jalen Milrow in this spot. The biggest game he's played Besides, before the SEC championship game was in Tuscaloosa against Texas, and we saw him make critical mistakes. Even in the Georgia game, despite what he did at the end of the game with his legs to basically seal the win for Alabama, that game was closer than it should have been because Milrow didn't particularly play well. On the flip side of that, J.J. McCarthy, despite the fact that I think that his early performance last year against TCU was not particularly great, he's been in this moment before. That's a learning experience. Jim Harbaugh has taking his lumps in the college football playoff semifinal to get to this point. Sharon Moore is a little bit experienced in this as well. I think that Michigan's experience in this moment, the veteran nature of this team, and frankly, the defensive front, I trust this defensive front to contain Milrow better than anyone has, even if they haven't faced a mobile quarterback yet this season. And that does worry me in terms of picking Michigan. I just think that when you think of the Rose Bowl, 
there's been a lot of overs in the Rose Bowl history. Like the Rose Bowl, despite not being a dome, is a fast track. Teams play fast on it. We've seen, you know, a ton of Ohio State offenses really put up big numbers there. So I think that that actually benefits Michigan's defense. Michigan has a lot of team speed in that front seven that I think that they can really take advantage and get after Milrow, particularly with like Junior Colson at the linebacker position. I think they're probably going to keep him as a spy a lot in this game and just let him go side to side and chase Milrow around. So I think if you limit Milrow in that capacity, Michigan's secondary is quite good in itself, despite how, I mean, they're not as good as the front seven, but I do think that they are quite good. I think that they're able to limit the big plays that they want to get in the passing game. And I think this turns into a run game where I think Michigan also has the advantage. Like, despite the fact that I think Alabama's defensive line is better than Michigan's offensive line, I trust Michigan's rushing attack to win this game. I trust, or to perform better than Alabama's rushing attack. So I think it's close. I think it's decided by less than a touchdown. I would see, I would like 2017 would be a final score that I'm probably looking towards, but I think Michigan actually gets the win in this one. Good for you, man. I just feel that Jim Harbaugh, like, like trusting him to win a bowl game is like trusting Frank Gallagher to put presents under a tree. He's not really good at that. <laughs> but also, you, you brought up the point, Tommy Reese, you know, former Notre Dame quarterback, Notre Dame OC. That's another program that's really good at not winning bowl games, too. So mm-hmm. maybe it's just like a, Maybe it's just a quit watch party. Maybe the real national championship game is going on there in New Orleans. But I envision this is probably going to be the closer of the two games. So I think the winner of this game probably wins the national championship in my estimation right now. I don't know if you have any different thoughts about that too, but I know you do. So we'll move on to your game over there in New Orleans between the number two Washington Huskies and the number three Texas Longhorns. Um, mm-hmm. I did speak with Washington quarterback Michael Penix Jr. ahead of Christmas on behalf of Amazon's same-day delivery. I talked a lot about you know his relationship with Kalen DeBoer, how they brought Washington back, how they you know they always plays really well in very tight situations. But man, I'm all about Texas in this game. I mean, you know, I'm all about Texas because I was I was shooting you a wry smile when you said I think the winner of the Rose Bowl goes on to win the national championship. For me, I think this is Texas's national championship to lose. Now, the only matchup that would really worry me is playing Alabama in the national championship game because beating Nick Saban twice, not exactly an easy thing to do. I understand that. I'm fully aware of that. But I think Texas is just simply the better team in that matchup. And the one criticism people are, or the one reason people are even like doubting Texas in this matchup against Washington is they're like, well, we've seen this secondary, you know, have lapses, have some problems with explosive passing offense, explosive passing offenses, which Michael Penix and Washington obviously possess with Roma dudes, a Jalen McMillan, Jalen Polk, and obviously Kalen DeBoer calling the plays as well. But I think the thing that really stands out to me is. We've seen this Washington team in its history of the program, like when they've been in the college football playoff before, or even when they've been in like, you know, New Year's Six Bowl games, that the offensive line tends to struggle when it faces elite talent on the defensive front. Texas's defensive line, one of the best in the country. I think that the Washington offensive line, despite how well it's played, and I think it is improved from what we've seen in previous years, but I still think that there is going to be a talented gap where Michael Penix, Michael Penix is under duress a little bit in this game. I think Dylan Johnson struggles to run the ball pretty pretty substantially, which we saw that shift throughout the year where Washington started relying on Dylan Johnson in the run game a little bit more as the season went on. And on top of that, when you look at this Texas secondary, the overall metrics say that, yes, they're susceptible to the explosive play. Yes, they're susceptible to lapses in coverage. But 
going to the eye test and watching a lot of Texas this season, that necess- that hasn't necessarily been the case. Early in games, in a lot of the close games they played, like you look at the Kansas State game, you look at the TCU game specifically, the secondary and the defense as a whole was pretty nails. And then it seemed like Texas just switched into cruise control. And it almost bit them a couple times, particularly against Kansas State. TCU almost came back. And that's when they started allowing the explosive plays in the second half. But I think that the more indicative thing of what Texas is and what Sark has this team going into like this direction that they're in is what we saw against Texas Tech in the season regular season finale. What we saw in the Big 12 championship game against Oklahoma State, where the explosive plays were when the game that they allowed were when the game was already out of reach. I think that this secondary is capable of playing a shutdown performance. Yes, Washington is going to score in this game. I'm not saying that Texas is going to completely obliterate Washington, but I think that the Texas secondary is going to be able to come up with enough stops far more than Washington's secondary is going to be able to come with, come up with against Texas with their boatload of weapons. Like for as good as Washington's weapons are, for as good as their quarterback is, I think Texas can match them blow for blow on their offense. And I think the Texas defense is just substantially better than what Washington has to offer. Yeah, I would say that Texas is much better defensively than Washington. I also have a feeling that Washington's going to play a little tight in this one. It's going to be, you know, it's in New Orleans, a neutral site for both, but New Orleans is much closer to Austin, Texas than Seattle, Washington. And the last time we saw Washington playoff, they played Alabama in Atlanta. So mm-hmm. that was that was tough for the Huskies there. The big thing that I keep going back to is Pennix makes up for a lot of deficiencies that exist within this team. You know, after talking with him, it's like, yeah, I think he was like a three or four star coming out you know, unheralded out of Tampa at IU, but it's like his intangibles are why he's going to be a first round pick. In my opinion, it's like slide of frame, left-handed injury prone, but like he locks in and he's, he's just got a really good mental toughness. He's got a good level of focus. He's locked in the moment, but you know, Quinn Ewers has that cannon. Quinn Ewers might get hurt. And if he gets hurt, it's Arch Manning. And that's good night, Texas. Cause man, wouldn't that be just ridiculous if like you had to go to Arch to win a, national city file when we know Malik Murphy would have done just as good if not better like but now he's at Duke so but then again I don't have no idea who Washington's backup is but I, I just keep going back to the fact that I think Washington's gonna play tight because they they're undefeated they haven't lost all year weren't gonna get the benefit of the doubt whereas Texas you know has the Oklahoma loss but has played in a lot of other tough games and will play a little more loose and I think on a fast track like that in New Orleans it probably serves them more than you know washington who kind of plays on grass out there in the pacific northwest yeah i agree with that and then i also think you know going to the fast track point when you look at the way that washington's weapons win you know aroma dunze roma dunze is not i mean he's not slow by any stretch of the imagination but he is not a speed merchant Jalen mcmillan Jalen polk not really speed merchants they are crafty they are contested catch guys they are they're high end players who are going, who have obvious NFL futures, but they aren't exactly speed merchants. On the flip side of that, you look at a Xavier Worthy. That's all his game is. Like he's a, he's a absolute rail, but he runs, you know, in the four twos probably. Like he is going to absolutely thrive on the fast track and get there. Like with Quinn Ewers' big arm or Sark even scheming him open, he's going to be in space with a full head of steam. AD Mitchell. Yes, he is. He has the frame to be a contested catch guy, but on, on top of that, for his size, he's absolutely a burner. So, like, I think that having that, I think having the speed element in this game, I think we're going to see just a different level of athlete at Texas than we do at Washington. 
And then on top of that, you go to Quinn Ewers, and yes, if Quinn Ewers gets hurt, that's but I mean that's the case for either team, like you said. Washington's backup situation isn't like quarterback injuries are always something that you have to consider. But I look at this game, okay, if everyone stays healthy, what are we going to see? And the other thing that I keep coming back to is uh, Texas, their run game towards the end of the year kind of took a step back after the Jonathan Brooks injury. Yes, they have C.J. Baxter, a five-star freshman who is immensely talented, immensely prodigious in what he could potentially be for this Texas Longhorns program. But at the same time, I do think that having this month to prepare uh, almost, I think that's going to benefit a true freshman having to step into this run game. I think we're going to see Texas's run game be designed a little bit better and designed a little more friendly for C.J. Baxter and not C.J. Baxter coming into the Jonathan Brooks role. So I think that's another factor that not only is it going to benefit the player, C.J. Baxter, but I think it's going to hurt Washington because it's something they're not going to have seen on tape. And we're talking about one of the best schematic minds in college football with Sark being having a month to prepare to get his freshman running back ready and, and in position to, to succeed. So what I keep going back to with this game is there's three possible outcomes. And one of which is the only one that's not happening is Washington is not blowing out Texas. No, I don't anticipate a blowout in this game. I think Texas probably wins by like 10 points. I think this is a little bit more of even matchups, the right word, but I'd certainly feel that like Texas gets a better draw with Washington than Michigan gets with Alabama but that's not to say that Washington can't win at all. I think that they're I think all four teams in this playoff are capable of winning a national championship. I don't remember the last time that that was the case. Maybe God, maybe even the first one, but even that Florida State team in 14, I still have doubts about. But I feel like we're very fortunate that we have four teams that can win the playoff, but there is another team that probably could have that wasn't in it. No, absolutely. I think I uh I was explaining it to someone, I, you know, visiting family in Virginia. Shouts out to the internet in uh, Central Virginia that didn't allow me to be on the pod uh this past Thursday. But uh I was talking to a family member and I was saying, you know, so often in the playoff era, we've seen where it's one or two dominant teams. The past couple of years it's been that the Georgia of of it all. And Georgia went on and they showed 65 to 7 last year against TCU. Like they were just a cut above the rest of the college football world. Like it just seemed like there was a dominant presence. None of these teams have necessarily been that this is a much more parody filled season that we've seen. And it's a shame as we've mentioned that, you know, so certain conference commissioners didn't let us have the 12 team playoff. Cause I think this is a perfect year for the 12 team playoff with the quality that we have in that one through 10 range. But I think you're hundred percent right. Any of these four teams are capable of winning the national championship. I'm going, I like my pick is Texas to win the national championship because I think that their upside is probably the highest of all of these, but we've seen Texas not live up to their upside. Like they lost to Oklahoma at a neutral site game. Oklahoma is not the same quality of team that we're looking at in the playoff right now. So like Texas can lose. I'm not saying Texas is flawless that I'm, you know, I would bet my house that they're going to win it all. I, that's just who I, I favor because of, I think they have the highest ceiling, but. We're looking at the most parody-filled college football playoff that we've seen because these four teams, not only are they all deserving of being there, but they are all capable of winning it all, which is, like you said, is something we have not really seen. Even back in, you know, 2014, I don't think that it was at this level where you look at all four teams and it's, you know, you kind of just shrug your shoulders because you don't really, there's, it's hard to say anything with your chest about this college football playoff. I was on the Philadelphia Sports Table podcast with Jeff Warren a couple weeks ago, big, uh, Penn State fan, probably reeling about what happened there in the Peach Bowl last night. But he asked me a little bit about the playoff and kind of got me my brain thinking and stuff. But um, 
I really like Texas too, but I feel like Texas just has the most variance of any team in the playoff. Like they, their ceiling is really high, but their floor could also be low. I feel like with Michigan or Alabama, you kind of get what you can get. And then obviously Washington's a high floor, low ceiling national championship contender. I feel like the variance is just like what it's going to throw a wrinkle in this entire thing. It's like, it's why I think Washington could win the whole, or not Washington, Washington, Washington can win the whole thing, but why Texas can win the whole thing, but why they can also lose to Washington by 10 points in the first round. It's just, mm-hmm. I think we're very fortunate that we have the teams that are in there because it's it's going to be really competitive. I don't think we're going to get a dud. No. But again, we were denied a 12-team playoff when we should have probably had it. We're, honestly, if you want to kick it out to Liberty, like I think every team that would have made it, for the most part, with the exception of um, one program near where my mom is from, like – would have done pretty good in here. So let's let's move on to let's move on to that here. So we got a little bit of a you know New Year's Six review preview and whatnot. Um, the game we had on Friday night was the Cotton Bowl between Ohio State and Mizzou. A very low scoring game. I did say that Mizzou was going to slaughter Ohio State, and it was a fourteen to three slaughter. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Not all slaughters are created equal, man. But that was definitely. I mean, Ohio State couldn't throw the ball. That was my big thing going into that game. It was like, okay, Kyle McCord's gone. We crapped on Kyle McCord the entire season for being limited in comparison to previous Ohio State quarterbacks in the uh, in the Ryan Day offense. If Kyle McCord won the job and there was never really a debate about who was going to be the starting quarterback for much of the season, then how bad are the backups going to look? And we saw how bad they like Missouri's defense quite susceptible we saw it throughout the entire SEC season they won they got to 11 wins this season based on the strength of their offense not on the strength of their defense and so seeing Ohio State struggle to the level that they did like it was basically okay I hope Travion Henderson gets us a first down or else we're screwed and part of that I will I will grant you know Devin Brown and uh, Kyle Holtz the you know the mercy of they did not have Marvin Harrison Jr. in this game, which Marvin Harrison Jr. was the safety blanket all season long for Kyle McCord. But at the same time, like it's a receiver factory in Columbus. Like they do nothing but produce high level receiver talent. So the fact that the offense was so stagnant against a Missouri defense that is average at best, I it was it was unfortunate. Part of it was the opt outs, but I think part of it is just the fact that. Ohio State has a quarterback problem going into 2024. They have something that they absolutely have to figure out. Yeah, got two thoughts about this from the Ohio State perspective and one from Mizzou. For Ohio State, it's like we didn't put enough, you know, we didn't make a big enough deal about Kevin Wilson going to Tulsa. Uh-huh. It really it really shows that Brian Hartline's a recruiter and not really a play caller or all that much. Fantastic wide receiver and wide receivers coach. But what I think this did is it put even more on Ryan Day's plate to call plays, get everything set up, and it just felt like the whole offense was clunky all year. It's weird. Like, we we thought McCord was really strong coming out of high school. Level of comp was an issue, but he played with Marvin Harrison Jr. there. I think it's St. Joe's in Philadelphia, St. Joe's Prep in Philadelphia. But we kind of like McCord now at Syracuse playing for Fran Brown. So this may be more of an Ohio State thing offensively than we would think. Hmm. And I guess, like, the other part with Ohio State is really wasting a really good uh, Jim Knowles defense this year. His side of the ball really stepped up. It's probably why he was a finalist for the Duke job. He worked there before, but I think that Duke wanted to go with a complete outside hire, which I understand, and they made a good hire with Manny Diaz. But, man, 
Ohio State's got to get somebody in the portal. Is there anybody there that you think the Buckeyes have to get a quarterback? You wrote about this yesterday for fansided.com, putting five quarterbacks who are still available in the portal. I Perhaps this is like a little bit of the gambling nature that I have, but my pick would be Malachi Nelson. You know, you look at C.J. Stroud, another California kid who had a ton of success playing that style of football, playing a high level of comp in California. And I think that when you look at, you know, a Will Howard, when you look at a Cam Ward, when you look at uh, even a Jordan McLeod coming from JMU, like, I think that all of these guys, there is, A, there's a lot, there's less of a runway. Like, these guys are basically all, those guys are all basically one and done propositions. Malachi Nelson can be the future, which for all the good that Ryan Day and Ohio State have done on the recruiting trail, they don't necessarily have like a surefire thing coming at quarterback. They have Aaron Nolan, who's a four star, I believe a top 100 recruit coming in, but like, that's not like a for sure thing. Like Kyle McCord was a five star and was supposed to be a sure thing. And we saw how that worked out. So like you don't have a for sure contingency plan at quarterback. If you get one of these veterans, I think the upside and the potential of Malachi Nelson with the formula that you saw work with CJ Stroud, I think is something that I would be enticed by. And I would rather see Ryan day in Ohio state fail taking a big swing on a Malachi Nelson than I would see that I would like to see them go. 11 and one losing to Michigan again by playing it safe with a Will Howard or a Cam Ward or something like that for a short term solution. Yes. I think the upside with like a Cam Ward is why he was number one for me. But again, the more I thought about it with Malachi Nelson is you're getting three years there. You're going to make Lincoln Riley look stupid, you know, and you know, the big 10 play. Mm-hmm. I really liked Will Howard there. I thought he would fit pretty well there, but it seems like he's probably USC bound. DJU is interesting. Cause you know, that's a, high high floor low ceiling type of player maybe that's kind of what they wanted but the more i thought about it what ohio state has to do is they got to go for a guy who played a very competitive level of high school football uh-huh. you know because that that would be the same for malachi nelson Luis alamitos big time i don't know if that's private or public school but yeah it's it's, set, it's certainly not going to be like handed to you on a silver platter kind of like it was with dju at st john bosco kind of like what it was with Kyle McCord at st joe's prep I uh, believe what CJ Stroud's from Rancho Cucamonga, and I think he played mm-hmm. just like. And then, uh, obviously, Justin Fields is from Harrison High School here in Cobb County, Georgia. I'm actually in Fulton or DeKalb County, but yes, Metro Atlanta area. The, the level of comp there is pretty good, but I think that's going to be a big key there. And I think it gives um it gives Day a longer runway. Like it gives you through 26 as opposed to through 24. Mm-hmm. And this is all about job security and. um if you get Malachi Nelson, I think people will give him the benefit of the doubt if he kind of shows some strides and grows like C.J. Stroud and Justin Fields did. But if it's a one-and-done thing and it doesn't work out, they'll look for somebody else. So that's a big that's a big thing there with Ohio State. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you are – you know, if you have the one-and-done type of transfer come in, you're facing this exact same question next year because it's like, okay, do we go – you know, say Devin Brown doesn't enter the portal. Say, you know, Lincoln Kineholtz doesn't enter the portal – Aaron Rowland doesn't enter the portal. You're still facing the question of the unknown, of level of competition. So, like, you're just running this back again. Malachi Nelson, at the very least, sets you up with the potential to find a long-term answer at the position and then kind of get things back on track. Like, it's not dissimilar to what we just saw at Texas, which also involved involved Ohio State. Like, they got Quinn Ewers after a redshirt year in his first year in Columbus, and they brought him to Austin. And now he's been their quarterback for three seasons. Yes, he's had some injuries along the way, or he's going to be end up being the quarterback if he returns for 2024, which is the expectation. But, I mean, that's a three-year starter that you get 
And it's basically just like landing a high end recruit in the transfer portal. The same thing with Malachi Nelson. So I think Ohio State should look at that playbook and not be short sighted in what they're doing because I think they are in danger of being short sighted because of the situation they're in. You know, three straight losses to Michigan, missing the playoff this year, losing in the playoff semifinal last year at the stroke of midnight. Like I think that I think that they are in there is a sense of desperation from at least from the Ohio State fan base. I'm not sure it's necessarily there with Ryan Day, but there is the potential for it to be there when it's with the fan base. So I think that they are in danger of being short-sighted, but I think like looking long-term is probably their best option. And I think if you're doing that, then Nelson is the clear choice out of the guys that are still available in the portal. I would definitely agree. They got to act fast because this just ain't good enough right now, particularly with the four Pac-12 schools coming in all of whom are certainly capable of playing in the year six games with their current uh, coaching staffs and everything like that. Um, I guess we'll move on a little bit to, you know, our Wonderwall, our Oasis, the Gallagher brothers' favorite team, are definitely maybe winner of the year, the Missouri Tigers. They're good. They want to bury – they play – they show that they can win games in multiple ways. Their 11-2 and two is different than Ohio State's 11-2. and two. Mm-hmm. I guess um, one question I have for you and then a comment is, is this sustainable for Mizzou next year? Like, can they, are they now like Georgia's biggest challenger in the SEC East or would have been? I know we're going rid of divisions now, but then also how much fun would have been to see this team in a 12 team playoff? To answer both those questions, I do think this is sustainable. We've seen Eli Drinkwitz take one of the things when you see poppiers from programs that you maybe don't always see it from, particularly in the SEC we kind of see coaches or programs not necessarily take advantage of their success. Drink is not doing that. Drink is recruiting the Missouri area, the St. Louis area at a very high level right now. He is in the mix for all of these guys. He's also playing it smart. Uh, that on national signing day, Laura Rutledge, a Florida grad was, uh, interviewing drink about his signing, cl- signing day class. And at the end of the interview, she wished him good luck because he was at the recruit, the house of a recruit talking to him. And he said, based on your background, I don't think you want that. That means he was talking, trying to flip her Florida recruit. But one of the things about Florida is the expectation is that Billy Napier is probably not going to be around the next year. So Florida is probably going to have a lot of portal entries. So he's laying the groundwork to continue this type of stuff. So the work that drink is doing on the recruiting trail really putting a footprint in in this home state, keeping in-state recruits, which is a high a talent-rich area in the St. Louis area, putting his footprint there, but also working the transfer portal very smartly, finding guys who fit his program. I think this is absolutely sustainable. I think Drink is doing a phenomenal job with the program. And on top of and to answer the second question, yeah, man, I would have loved to see them this Missouri team in the in a 12-team playoff. They, I mean, yes, one of their two losses was to Georgia. That was not an easy win for Georgia. They gave they gave Georgia everything that Georgia could handle in that game. Yes, it was a nine point win for Georgia in the end, but like Missouri had them on their heels a couple times, and Georgia, you know, had the wherewithal to withstand that and you know pull themselves up. But Missouri could do that to a lot of programs that are in the playoff that would have been in a twelve team playoff. I think they could have really made some noise. I think it's a well coached team. I think that this offense is obviously explosive with Schrader, with Luther Burden. Brady Cook has taken a big step forward this year. So yeah, I mean, I wish we could have seen the twelve team playoff. Just another team that makes me think, looking at Jim Phillips and guys like that, and thinking, man, you really robbed us of something special this year. Yeah, I'm not not sure if Georgia is playing Mizzou yet, but I I don't want to go to Como next year. No, <laughs> I don't want to play them there. I will say though, the recruiting is everything. You know, Drink has an idea of what he wants to do. 
you know, you make St. Louis your base. If you can get good guys from Kansas City, you know, Texas and other Atlanta, other major cities in the SEC footprint, that's great. But like you get guys in the portal. I mean, Cody Schrader was a Juco transfer or like a lower level transfer. He had phenomenal success. SEC running back of the year, probably going to be a day two pick now. Phenomenal mm-hmm. player. And then you get guys that are blue chippers in state, like a Luther Burden the third. And then, you know, Mizzou has always had good quarterback play and good pass rush, and you can win with that. It's just kind of a question of, like, how well does a secondary hold up? Is the offensive line any good? Can we run the ball? He seems like what he's doing is, like, kind of more in line with what made Gary Pinkle a Hall of Fame-level coach. But he's also got there a little bit earlier because he's not spending time at, like, Toledo like Pinkle did. Like, this is this has a really long, uh, really long trail uh, for – drink here and i think it's really good for mizzou but it was certainly not a very good time for penn state versus oh Ole miss there uh, i kid you not so the arizona state podcast got a uh dog sitting request at the hyatt centric in downtown atlanta probably a penn state fan wanting them to watch the dog in a hotel room <laughs> like don't you, have, don't you have somebody at home who can watch your dog Absolutely not. You got to watch them in the hotel room, man. That's obviously the only logical solution for this. Yeah, but um, almost came out on top over Penn State. I felt the winner of this game is going to be like a very serious national championship contender next year. I envision both are going to make the playoff, albeit expanded. But like, I am really high on Ole Miss next year. I think that the Rebels are going to be fantastic. They may come out of the SEC. They may win the SEC next year. If they're that good. Yeah, I mean, when you know, we talked a few weeks ago about the schedule. Ole Miss is set up in an advantageous spot. Basically, everyone you saw on the field that played a significant role for the Rebels this season is coming back, and they're adding a Walter Nolan. They're adding Princely from Florida. They're adding the edge rusher from Tennessee, whose name I am completely blanking on. But they're adding, like, I mean, they have the number one ranked portal class, well, like with a bullet. Like, it is the best portal class, and it's to a team that is already going to be experience laden, talent laden. What is going to finish as a top 10 team in the country. So Ole Miss is definitely a national championship contender, definitely a contender to win the SEC. But I think the thing that I keep coming back to is how much Lane Kiffin has, has matured as a head coach and a program runner. You know, Lane Kiffin has all, has long been kind of a punchline for the Joey Freshwater stuff, the stories that you hear for getting tarmacked at USC for all of the stuff that. You know, makes Lane Kiffin a polarizing character. But as a head coach, he has matured so tremendously. And I think we saw it in this game when he's matched up with the James Franklin, who deserves a lot of the criticism that he gets, but is still, at the end of the day, a high-end college football coach. But I'm coming back to this quote, and this is a quote. This is the contrasting quotes between James Franklin and Lane Kiffin that were said after the game. James Franklin was asked about his game plan and about how Ole Miss had a ton of success against his defense, which was missing some guys, obviously. And he said... When you watch their game plan, they went after some guys that had not played a lot for us this year. Then they asked Lane Kiffin about the same thing. He said, they pay us a lot of money as coaches, so I would think we wouldn't be really good coaches if we didn't realize that and obviously go in and attack where they were missing guys. That's not something that Lane Kiffin five, ten years ago would have done. He was so reliant on my scheme is better than whatever you're going to do that he wouldn't adjust to the game plan. Lane Kiffin's maturation as a coach is not just him not doing quite as many extracurricular activities as he once did, but it's also him 
maturing as a play caller, as a schematic mind where he sees the weakness, he identifies it, and he attacks it. Yes, when you're against an Alabama or something like that, you're going to have more adjustments, which I think is the next step of maturation for Lane Kiffin. But I do think that he has matured into one of the best coaches in college football, and he's not just Lane Kiffin offensive mind. He's Lane Kiffin, great head coach. Yes, this was all about Lane Kiffin. Um, I had to write something or write something for fansside.com about his what's his bowl record, and it was absolutely fascinating and kind of a testament to what you were saying. So we know that Ole Miss is the fifth team he's coached. He coached the Raiders back in the aughts, like late aughts when we were in high school and everything like that mm-hmm. for two years or a year and change. Then he had one year at Tennessee uh, when we were in college, and then he went to USC for a few years, got tarmacked, went to Alabama, got rehabbed. FAU for three years, and this is year four at Ole Miss. If you look at back at where he was prior to Ole Miss, it's like, okay, I'm here for about two or three years. I played in one bowl game. I left before another one, or I got fired, or I didn't make him. So it was just pure chaos everywhere. But like since being at Ole Miss, it's like, okay, we went from like a 500 team under Matt Luke to being a team that goes 10 and 2, like a good kind of 10 and 2, right? As a James Franklin type. But with the expanded playoff, and with the SEC getting rid of divisions, there's no reason for him to ever leave unless he's going like, to be given the Alabama job. Like You have to remember, Ole Miss, like, <laughs> historically, it's kind of middle of the pack in the SEC. They had their glory days in the late 50s and 60s with Johnny Vaught. But like right now, with where the playoff is going and with the brand that Lane Kiffin can build, if he can continue to hit the portal, maintain a good staff, I mean – he can win a national championship at Ole Miss. Like, I don't think that that's out of the realm of possibility. The shift of the college football world is in his favor. I'm very happy for him. The Rebels are going to be very good. I would probably put them at seven or higher in next year's top 25 to start. I think they're that good. I, I mean, absolutely. Like, they're they're finishing the season as a top 10 team. You can't really name a big-time contributor from this team that isn't going to be back or if it is, it's a spot where they're upgrading with a Walter Nolan. It's a spot where they're upgrading on the edge, you know, on the defensive side of the ball. This is going to be a better Ole Miss team than what we saw last year or this past year. I mean, I'm honestly looking at them and I'm wondering if this is a top five team for next season. I'm not one like, you know, top seven, I think, is pretty much a lock with the talent that they're bringing in, the talent that they're bringing back with Lane Kiffin kind of earning the respect. And, you know, you talk about going 10 and 2. With the bowl win, winning the Peach Bowl, this team, this is the first Ole Miss team to ever win 11 games, 130 seasons or 129 seasons. And they have never won 11 games in program history, even with, you know, Johnny Vaughn. Like this is, this is a historic accomplishment for what Lane Kiffin is building. And they're, I think they're going to be even better. And once again, touching on it, they have possibly the, the easiest SEC schedule of any program that has like, you know, playoff or national championship hopes. Like, yes, there are probably some lower level SEC teams that have easier schedules, but in terms of like the contenders in that league, they have by far the easiest road path to win the conference to make the playoffs. So I'm, this is not, you know, this isn't a flash in the pan. This isn't the culmination. This is, you know, kind of the middle, like the rising action. If you want to talk about like, you know, you rise into the climax. I think this is the rising action. I think we're about to see the climax. Yeah, they're still going to play LSU in Georgia next year. But if you split, you're 11 1. You're probably going to Atlanta because Georgia's got a tough schedule. Texas has a tough schedule. Alabama has a tough schedule. Oklahoma, they all do. I think LSU and Ole Miss 
have the most navigable of any national title contenders, so maybe it'll work out for them. I don't know if it's really working out for James Franklin there at Penn State. Mm. I understand that you have to replace both coordinators, and they the, the, the Nittany Lions played pretty well, all things considered, but um, I honestly have some questions about Drew Aller. It's mm. I'm not saying he's like washed or whatever, but anytime there's a big opponent, I just feel like he shrinks. And I just kind of felt like watching Jackson Dart, he's a little bit more seasoned than him. But, like, this is a guy, like, I kind of went into the game like, oh, I think Jackson Dart's going to play well. Whereas, like, with Drew Aller, I'm like, I hope he plays well. Maybe that day will will come. Maybe that will start flipping next year. But right now I'm like, I have a lot of questions about him and the Penn State offense next year. Let's see. It'll be interesting to see how well he bonds with Andy Koltenecki now calling plays coming over from Kansas. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that is the, the million dollar question for Penn State. Like, I think we know that James Franklin is not a perfect head coach to put it as kindly as I possibly can. But I do think that a lot of this comes down to Drew Alar. I guess if you want to look at it from an, through an optimistic lens, which I'm not sure I am quite as much as I was even just a few weeks ago, but JJ McCarthy had some growing pains in his first full se- in his first season as a starter where you kind of looked at him and it was like okay I see the talent I see some of the you know some of the throws that you want to see from a high end quarterback talent you know taking over the offense but the inexperience the lack of maturity kind of the you know hearing footsteps which I think is what really haunts Aller in these big games that we've seen is that like when there's pressure on him or when there's a big moment it feels like he feels every ounce of it. And we've seen McCarthy kind of get past that. Like even if McCarthy isn't asked to do a whole lot in some of the big games that we've seen, when he is asked to do something, he doesn't like, he looks like a mature leader out there where we're not definitely not seeing that from Aller at this point. So the optimistic outlook would be, okay, it's his first year as a starter. He's going to progress from that. However, you would kind of want to see that in the bowl game and you didn't against the Sole Miss team. Granted, it was with a, Offensive line in front of him that was missing Olufushana, who's going to be a top five pick. It was with a deep, you know, the defense, which had really carried this team to this point to making the Peach Bowl. They were without uh, Chop Robinson, without both starting corners, including Kalen King. So, like, I think it is a situation where Penn State was at a little bit of a disadvantage, but at the same time, you still wanted to see more from Aller and you didn't. And whether or not he makes that JJ McCarthy esque leap next year, I think is going to really not just determine what Penn State is next year, but I think potentially have an uh, have some potential to determine James Franklin's future. I would probably agree as well. Not to get political or anything, but let's kind of use it like, you know, like a presidential race where like there's a certain number of seats to win like the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. We can kind of maybe do that now, the expanded playoff Electoral College. You yeah. know, the group of five is going to get one. We think, we, we talked about this before, maybe about a month or so ago, but like the... The SEC in the current format with adding Oklahoma and Texas, you're looking at between four and five spots. And of those those teams coming in, you'd feel pretty confident that Ole Miss would probably get one of those four or five. If you were to go to, like, say, hypothetically, the Big Ten, where they've got three or four, like, how sure are you that Penn State's getting one of those three or four with Oregon? And with Washington, with USC, with UCLA coming in, as well as, yes, we think Michigan's still going to be really good. Ohio State's still, even in a down year, still a top 15 program. Like, I'm trying to wonder, like, if Penn State's going to 
like no no program would have benefited more from an expanded playoff in its first decade than Penn State. But I don't even know if they're going to benefit right away. They might. They could be fantastic. They could be like a number six seed next year. But like right now, I'm a little concerned that you know maybe expansion adding the big the four teams from the Pac-12 squeezes them out a little bit, hurts their clout. No, it definitely could because you know you think about it in the terms of what we just talked about with Alar. If Alar doesn't take that step forward, then that Penn State team is going to have a lot of trouble with what these newcomers to the from the Pac-12 like to do. Like, if Alar is struggling, Oregon is going to have a pass rush that can really harass him and cause him problems and also ask him to keep up with an explosive offense. Washington, kind of the same deal. Uh, USC, I believe that you we're going to, you know, we'll talk about the Holiday Bowl in a little bit when we're talking about Antonio's one big holiday, but... I think that what we're going to see from USC is actually going to be kind of a stark improvement on the defensive side. I, I think they're going to put uh, simplify things from that side of the ball and really get after it to pass rush. And we know Lincoln Riley can coach an offense. So I think that we're going to see USC be able to do something similar. UCLA, they may not have the offensive firepower of the other three teams, but they are going to have a defense that is capable. Like we saw this past year, how much improvement they made with the defensive personnel, with the defensive talent that they have. They're going to be able to push Penn State and Ascalar to answer that. So like, in those, in just against the matchup against the four newcomers, if Alar doesn't take that step forward, then Penn State is going to fall further behind the eight ball in this conference. Yeah, that's kind of my thing is like, where are you in the pecking order? You go from like third, then you go to like six. Six doesn't get you in from the Big no. Ten. You know, if we look at the Electoral College anyway, uh, two teams that will probably be in their spot every year with Georgia and Florida State, given what they have. Like Georgia would be like a top four team in the SEC most years. And I would say Florida State will be a top three team in the ACC most years. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we saw in Miami. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, I have some thoughts. I'll let you have some thoughts first. What do you got with the uh, Orange Bowl uh, bludgeoning? They turned them into pulp and orange juice down there. It was um, the big dog ate, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, uh, that was not a fun game to watch. It was very reminiscent of last year's national championship game, which go figure. That was the last year's national championship game. 58 point margin of victory was the biggest blowout in bowl game history. And Georgia won up themselves. And now they also still hold the biggest blowout in bowl game history with a 63 to three win. There's two, two things I want to touch on. One would be the Georgia side of things and Kirby Smart. I honestly think that Kirby Smart, based on what he said post game, you know, he was talking about the opt outs and he said, what we saw out there was a construct of basically the current system we have in place with opt outs and bowl season and things like that. And it needs to be fixed, which is some, a common refrain that we've heard from coaches in this bowl season that something has to be done about the system that we have in place that allows these opt outs to happen in such mass, mass quantities. What we know about Kirby is when he's got a point to prove, he's going to prove it. And I wonder if the way things played out was kind of a point proving, you know, experiment from Kirby Smart. Then on the Florida State side of things, it's highly disappointing for a team that talked about and a fan base that talked about prove why the playoff made a mistake, prove why, you know, they deserve to be in. Yes, I understand you had an inordinate amount of opt-outs a truly like devastating number of opt-outs, like I, more than half of the starters on like in total of the 22 on offense and defense were not in this game. Part of that was the Jordan Travis injury, but most of them were opt-outs going to the NFL draft. You're looking at a program that 
literally just didn't show up. And they, you know, there were some comments made about boycotting the Orange Bowl. They basically did. They did not show up for this game. No one of consequence really played for this game outside of maybe Patrick Payton on the defensive front. But one guy is not going to make the difference a team against a team like Georgia. It was, it was not, I mean, it, frankly, it was a disgrace to the Orange Bowl. It was a disgrace to bowl season. It was not a disgrace to Georgia, obviously, but it was a disgrace to Florida State and their proud history. I don't blame any of the kids for opting out. I'm a I'm a big proponent for pl- player empowerment, and I think if you want to opt out to protect your NFL future, you should absolutely do it. I think that you're protecting your future is the right way to move with the current system that's in place with college football. But like that performance, like that was that was a team. The team that we saw from Florida State was a team that should have been playing in the Quick Lane Bowl, not the Orange Bowl. Yeah, that was um, it was a bad time. I'll try to be respectful here, even though I really don't want to. But uh, we'll go ahead with it. <laughs> I'm not going to say there's a culture problem with that and with Mike Norvell at Florida State because that's not for me to judge. But I will say, though, like Georgia felt that they kind of got robbed from the playoff, too. They're like, yeah, we're clearly better than like at least a handful of these teams. Maybe we can't claim that over Alabama. If we play them again. Maybe we beat them. But like they went out there, they opted in and they played. It's the same sort of thing that you saw with Alabama last year. They kind of felt like they were jabbed too. Like they lost by like a combined four or five points between LSU and Tennessee. You still saw Bryce Young and Will Anderson Jr. play in the Sugar Bowl and they annihilated Kansas State. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, th- I think what happened was you saw guys on that Alabama team a year ago saw that and they responded. And that's why I think that, you know, the team that they have now can't win it all. I think that, that they saw this like, wow, okay. It's all about the team here. Not everybody's going to do that. I thought it was very risky for Young and Anderson to play in that game. You know, we didn't see Brock Bowers or Marius Mims, if at all. We also saw Lyle McConkey, you know, score from 40 yards out, which was crazy and insane and all yes. that other good stuff. But um, I, I think it's like, yeah, Georgia also had more guys hit the transfer portal than anyone. Like their depth was decimated and a lot of starters didn't play. But then again, at the end of the day, you had Will Muschamp's son playing quarterback with Mike Bobo's son on the offensive line throwing a pass and completing it to Stetson Bennett's brother who plays tight end. Like, that was embarrassing for Florida State. I feel really bad for their fans, but I don't feel bad for the people who are still, like, opining and placating for them. Like, you're lost. You don't get to write history. The people who win get to write history. You know, that, that's how it goes. You know, you may have your side of the story and everything like that, but, um, you know, there's just two ways to go about it. Like, if, you, if life hands you lemons... You can make lemonade, or you can do what Kuna did at uh, at Bale, and that's kind of. <laughs> State. And um, optically, it was just so bad for Florida State, and um, they have just gotten back to whatever the hell it was, you know, after Jim Fisher left them and his Christmas tree in the driveway, to to have to have this to be like this close to making the playoff, and they come short, and then just completely just crap the bed. That's hard, you know, because. Florida State should have been a playoff team, and Georgia should have been a playoff team because there should have been 12. Yeah. No, 100%. And one thing that I was thinking about last night post-game while um, while I was watching Monday Night Football on a Saturday was I wonder if the opt-outs for Florida State would have been as dramatic if Tate Rodemaker doesn't hit the portal. Because it seemed like, you know, when you look at the S- the ACC championship game, that team had a little bit of belief behind Tate Rodemaker. That team was pretty galvanized. We saw the deep, the defense in particular really, you know, pick up a backup quarterback after Jordan Travis went down. But when Rodemaker opted out, that kind of seemed to be when 
the wheels really started coming off when you started seeing everyone join him opting out for the NFL draft or, you know, a few guys hitting the portal. And I wonder if Rodemaker had not hit the portal or had hit the portal but decided to play the bowl game. I do wonder if we had seen we would have seen a little bit more fight, a little bit more uh attendance, I guess is the best way to say it, from the Seminoles. Uh I do wonder if that's the case, but what we saw I mean, I, I'm not going to say it's a culture problem. I think Mike Norvell has actually done a pretty phenomenal job of building the culture back up at Florida State, which, I mean, it was it was absolutely in the gutter when, after the Taggart era, which was post-Jimbo, which Jimbo did not leave Taggart a favorable, favorable position either. But I do think that Norvell has done a good job. I just think that, I don't know, it's a very complicated matter, but like I think that for all of the peacocking that the fan base, for all the peacocking that the team did after the fact that they deserved, that they were snubbed, that they should have been in the playoff, I think to come out and deliver that type of performance, especially, you know, you talk about what Alabama did last year when they felt they deserved to be in the playoff. You talk about what we've seen other programs do. Like, there's something to be said for finishing what you started, and I think that there's a part of me that wonders, you know, what if they go out there with their full roster, with Rodemaker, with Keon Coleman, with Johnny Wilson, with Jared Verse, with all of these guys that opted out? What if they go out there with that group and they beat Georgia or they challenge Georgia and then they go out and they pull a UCF and they claim that they won a national championship, that they were snubbed? I think that's a much more compelling case than watching a team just basically give up on the season because they were snubbed and get beat by 60 points. I know, man. Could you imagine like what Danny Cannell would have done parading around his house on Periscope or whatever it was? Right. He probably wouldn't have been wearing any talking about how great and like how they're going to throw like a UCF uh, participation trophy national championship parade. Congratulations. But like, I guess I had like one more thought about it before we move on to like the last New Year's Six Bowl that we're going to briefly preview here. Uh, you're right though with Rodemaker, with him hitting the portal, that basically like, you know, put a needle into the balloon and let all the air out. That's kind of how that was. I'll give Brock Glenn a lot of credit. That was not an easy spot to be put in there. He, he may have thrown some interceptions. He may have taken some hits, but there are some things about him that I saw. I'm like, okay, I think there's something there with him. I think Mm -hmm. this is going to be for his mental toughness. He throws a good ball, uh, fearless, a lot of respect for him. I thought he did very well, all things considered. And then uh, Gunnar Stockton. That man does not like to slide just like Mario Cristobal does not like to knee. <laughs> Gunnar Stockton's like, I'm playing two-way ball up there in Raven, Georgia, and I don't care. I'm going after you. Yeah, the thing about two-way football, I've long said, is it really uh, affects your uh, mental toughness. And Gunnar Stockton is going to take every hit in the world. But I think you do have to come away. Like, we saw a lot of depth from the depth that Georgia still had around playing this game, obviously. I do think the one thing my actual like large long-term takeaway, the biggest one that I have is that Florida state is still not on the level of a Georgia of an Alabama of an Ohio state where when the backups come in, they're still fine. Like when Florida state gets to its backups, they don't have that kind of depth that the elite, like, you know, when you talk, you talk about like blue chip ratio that, you know, that's a big buzzword these days with, you know, the amount of four and five stars you have on your roster and Georgia and Alabama unsurprisingly lead the way in that metric. Florida State is not on that level yet. They don't have the depth on their roster that can match what a Georgia and Alabama has in that capacity. And I think we're seeing that. I think Mike Norvell is working on that. You know, we're coming, you know, National Signing Day, they signed a top five recruiting class. So, like, I think we are trending towards that. But I think that is the next step for Florida State to get back to, you know, the Bowden era type of glory or even the early Jimbo era uh, type of glory that we're used, that we want Florida State to be at. Because, 
I mean, for all of, you know, we can dog on Florida State for this game all we want, but college football is better when a program like Florida State is at this at their top tier, you know, competing for playoff spots or competing for national champions championships, competing for New Year's six spots. So I do like long term, I do think that Florida State can get closer to that level, but right now I think it shows that the transition is not fully complete from where they were when Nor- Norvell got there. You're absolutely right. You know, Norvell had done a fantastic job of getting guys in the portal you know, offset some of the recruiting deficiencies you had there under Willie Taggart and the tail end of the Jimbo Fisher era. That's like Ole Miss has to do that because of a competitive disadvantage in state with Mississippi. A lot of guys want to go to Mississippi State too. There's not there's a lot of talent there, but it's like people approach that area. Florida's got a lot of talent, so I think eventually Norvell will pivot off of hitting the portal so hard because he'll have a stranglehold on Florida because Miami continues to disappoint UCF still trying to find its footing and Florida's a disaster <laughs> that's really, really how I feel about that but um the last game of the playoff um is not or not the playoff near six is not going to be a disaster it's going to be intriguing it's Oregon versus Liberty being played at like 11 a.m mountain like mountain noon 10 whatever oh, it's 11, in the a.m uh, Phoenix yes I don't know I don't know how they do clocks there even though they I don't know either. Don't there, so. don't worry about that. <laughs> yes, the uh, the Fiesta Bowl there between Oregon and Liberty. I'm really excited for this one. It's Bo Nix's final college game. We have a chance to see another team potentially go undefeated in Jimmy Chadwell's Liberty Flames. I, I feel like Oregon's going to win, but I really wouldn't be shocked if Liberty pulled it off. That would be that would be huge for Chadwell's like trajectory, possibly replacing Mac Brown in 25. It would be like that. Like that's kind of what I. I think that would be really huge for Jimmy Chadwell to get that. You know, level up. Like, oh, he's always had that Group of Five label. Well, you beat Oregon in the Fiesta Bowl. No Group of Five teams ever won a near Six Bowl. I don't think. No, and I do think that uh, Boise State maybe was that. That was New Year Six against Oklahoma, was it not? Now that I think about it, I think didn't Blake Bortles UCF beat Oregon? Mm, maybe. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. So. But, I mean, it is, it's once in a blue moon. It's not a common occurrence by any stretch of the imagination, even these top tier group of five teams. I do think, like, the reason Oregon is a 17 point favorite in this game is because Liberty had one of the worst strengths of schedule in the year. So you do kind of wonder what the level of comp that they faced is. But at the same time, there's two things that keep coming back to you. People look at this Oregon team and they're like, oh, Bo Nix is opting in. Well, that means everyone on Oregon's opting in. That's not the case. They're going to have some people opt out in the secondary on the defense that are going to be in the NFL and against Jamie Chadwell in this Liberty offense, that's going to be a problem. Liberty is going to score points in this game. Jamie Chadwell is one of the most respect, like one of, at least in my opinion, one of the best offensive minds in college football. I think that he, and he has a, you know, a power five type talent in Caden Salter. He was originally a Tennessee commit. So like, this is a guy who has that type of talent that we've seen Liberty, you know, find the cast offs from those power five programs and have a lot of success with and there's, I mean, there's a lot of talent around him on the offense. So I do think Liberty is going to be a, be able to put up points. I just don't know if they're ever going to stop Oregon and Bo Nix. Like, I just don't, I don't really see that happening. I think, like, I think this is going to be an exceptionally high scoring affair. I don't know if Oregon wins by 17. I think they probably do win, but it is probably the New Year's Six game I'm most excited for because you know Liberty is going to be invested in what they do in this game. And then the fact that Bo Nix is playing his final college game, we know that Oregon at least has some investment to a 
larger degree than we've seen some of the other New Year's Six teams. So I do think, and like the way the matchups stack up, I think that we're just going to see an absolute shootout in this one where it's just back and forth the entire game. So yeah, I mean, I mean, the Fiesta Bowl is going to be phenomenal. I can't wait. Uh, early, early kickoff in Phoenix, but it's going to be, it's going to be a fun one, man. That's really the only reason why we're not going there with Antonio. He's not really himself before noon anyway. Right. And uh, we've just had some stuff come kind of going on in the West Coast a little bit. So we may we may choose somewhere a little bit more closer to his second or third natural habitat, the uh, you know, the exotic amusement park. But um I'm thinking about this. So remember at the beginning of the year when we had that really big game between Oregon and Colorado? That I think this game between Oregon and Liberty will be closer to what we thought that game was going to be. A lot of points, no defense. Oregon's still probably going to win, but Liberty will keep it close. It's kind of how I'm feeling with this one. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Because, like, going back to what I said, like, I just think that despite Liberty's subpar competition that they faced in Conference USA, which is a bottom tier group of five league, I do think that this Liberty offense is not something that can be taken lightly with Jamie Chadwell calling the plays with the talent that they have with Salter and other people on that offense. I just think that, and on and additionally, I think that we see more opt outs on the offensive or on the defensive side of the ball for Oregon than we do on the offensive side of the ball around Bo Nix. So I just think that I think this game is going to be all about offense. It's more what I come down to. And when you have that type of game, like, you might think, yeah, that might lend itself to a blowout, but it normally doesn't. It normally lends itself more to a back-and-forth type of affair, which I've long said that when you get a back-and-forth type of affair, it can be anyone's game. I think Oregon just simply has too much talent for it to be Liberty's game necessarily in this one, but I do think that it's far more entertaining than it should be when you look at the matchup of Oregon versus Liberty on paper. You know, you might be an idiot if you can't spell Bonex. I can. I think you can, too. So we're going to pivot on the fly here. I think this parlays a little bit nicely to a segment we're going to uh, be do a little bit later, but uh, I'm an idiot. Um, during the solo pod, I could not say the Texas State head coach's name, G.J. Kenny, for the life of me. I kept calling him J.G., and that's because one of my fraternity brother's nicknames was J.G. So J.G. Kennedy, G.J. Kenny. You're apparently two different people. You have a great program. I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. I can spell it, but like I say it, it's like it's like tripping this like dyslexia thing in my brain. So I'm an idiot. Also, UCF with Blake Bortles, they beat Baylor, not Oregon. I'm an idiot. Hey, we're all idiots here because a couple of weeks ago I was talking about Jordan McLeod and when we were talking portal to y'all. And uh I said that Jordan McLeod had some legal troubles previously. Uh, that was not Jordan McLeod. Jordan McLeod was at, at South Florida and then at Arizona. He left the Arizona program to join JMU. No legal troubles. I was thinking of Liberty quarterback Hayden Salter, who, like I said, was a Tennessee commit and then got arrested for possession and then tra- got dismissed from the program because of that, and that's how he ended up at Liberty. So I'm an idiot. I apologize for putting legal troubles on Jordan McLeod when it was not him at all that had the legal troubles. And I'm sure there are a million other ways that I'm an idiot uh, that we can talk about. I just agreed with you that Blake Bortles beat, uh, who are we talking about? I can't, Oregon and not Baylor. But hey, I'll give us a little bit of credit there. When you get to the New Year Six, you're just looking at colors, man. The green and yellow, that's what we saw, and that's all that matters. <laughs> no, green, yellow, and gold, it's kind of a very Jaguarsy festive thing. You know, Blake Bortles. Very, this is a very pro Blake Bortles podcast, apparently. Uh, who knew? <laughs> 
Oh, how can you not love Blake Bortles? The man with the most honest quote of all time when asked what he would be doing if he was not playing in the NFL. He said probably ripping cigs and working construction. My, That's an absolute hero in my book. Well, he's living his best life now, probably doing that somewhere near Orlando. So congrats, Jeff. You want to do some Antonio or some God's here Dookie excellence right now? What are you feeling? Oh, let's let's get Antonio's big holiday and finish with some God's here Dookie excellence. I think that's the move. Okay. So uh, we're going to just go briefly through the Antonio games that we went to. Just give a little like little story or something about each game, and then we'll kind of move on to what we're going to have for Antonio for New Year's Day. So, the we're going to review the Boca Raton Bowl of uh, USF versus Syracuse. I told y'all it was going to be a blowout, and the Bulls won. You know, Antonio grabbed life by the horns, and um, he was. I think I think he was um, a little bit ahead of the curve there. He knew that it was going to be a rough time for Oranges. In the, in the bowl. I'll tell you that much. That's really Antonio's thing. He tried to get a bowl tattoo on his chest. I'm like, no, you're going to start looking like uh, Lance Armstrong. We don't want to do that. Oh, my gosh. Uh, knowing Antonio, he would have looked like Zion Williamson and getting the big cross that's not centered on your chest, despite being the fact that you're a multimillionaire. But, I mean, I think we both liked USF in this game, and I still, for the life of me, cannot figure out why Syracuse was favored in this game. What does Syracuse have to play for? They had, like, half their teams in the portal as they go through a coaching transition. They didn't really have a coach. Like, their coaching situation was not good. And on the flip side of that, you have a USF program that is getting built back up under Alex Galesh, has a legitimate stud. Byron Brown is one of my favorite players in college football to watch. I'm going to have big eyes on Byron Brown going into the 2024 season. And they played like it. I mean, it was an absolute bloodbath. The game was over by the start of the third quarter. It was not a close game. But, you know, shouts out to Boca Raton. They, they, USF being from Florida, they knew that the old folks of Boca Raton, Raton had an early bedtime. So they wanted to make sure that they could get in for that. <laughs> I said before on the solo pod, got to give Alex Golish a lot of credit. Won more games in one year. I believe it's seven or eight now, more than Jeff mm-hmm. Scott did his entire tenure there in Tampa. Um, and the weird part is, like, that seems like a really strong branch there from the Josh Heupel coaching tree. It'll be interesting to see what the next uh, branch that sprouts there. So let's look at this next one. The Gasparilla Bowl. Oh, my God. I have an Antonio story for you between Georgia Tech and UCF. We were in Tampa. The man started drinking rum like it was water. And he wanted to pick a fight with Buzz. and uh, But he ended up basically just falling off of his riding lawnmower on to because <laughs> it was the Gasparilla bad, like bad boy motors bowl so that was a lot of fun and um, he fell on top of a uh, Gus Malzahn and you know he couldn't hurry up and run anymore because he got a bum leg yeah we basically almost got kicked out of that one but you know we got out of there by the skin of our teeth because you know Tampa yeah Tampa and that the Gasparilla bowl was a weird one I was all over UCF in this game I thought that UCF and more importantly, I was all over offense. It ended up being a 30-17 to 17 game. I thought that 47 points might be what both teams scored in this game. I didn't think that would be the final total for this game. But it was it was such a weird game with so many weird bounces of the ball. Like, if you look at the final stats, UCF outgained Georgia Tech in this game by, like, 50 yards, 424 to 371. So, like, the fact that Georgia Tech came out with a win – but I do want to say it is a testament to what Brick Key is doing in Atlanta right now. 
that is we've talked about it endlessly. That is a incredibly difficult job because with the academic restrictions that Georgia Tech comes with, you can't take advantage of the city that you are in in Atlanta, which is obviously talent rich in terms of college football, you know, high end college football talent. You get poached by Georgia, by Alabama, by Auburn, by all of these high end SEC programs around you who don't have the same academic restrictions that you do. And so for Brent Key to get a guy like Haynes King who kind of fell out of favor in Texas A&M, maybe didn't actually get a fair shake if you want to be real about it at Texas A&M, to get a count like that and put him in a position to succeed, realize that he may not be the best thrower in the world, but, hey, he can move a little bit, so we're going to create this rushing attack. I think it's a real testament to that. And on the UCF side of things, you mentioned – you you know made an offhand comment earlier that UCF hasn't totally figured it out yet. I think that they're going to. I think Gus Malzahn is still trying to put his – full thumbprint on this entire program. I think it's a pretty stark transition from the air raid that we saw UCF run for so long to a Gus Malzahn offense, which is very much ground-based with a little bit of, you know, explosive passing. But I do think that out of these two teams, I think right now I feel – I actually weirdly feel more optimistic about Georgia Tech moving forward than I do about the Knights. Yeah, the Knights have an advantage with the Big 12 being in a state of flux. Gus Malzahn's a championship-caliber head coach – They'll figure it out, but he's got to figure that footprint out there too because you got the four-corner universities coming in. As for Georgia Tech, that definitely might maybe be a good team next year. It would shock me if they you know, played for an ACC championship in Charlotte and maybe even made the playoff if they get a couple of bounces there. I don't know if they're quite ready to compete with Georgia for you know, clean old-fashioned hate, but you know they have won in Athens before uh, very mm-hmm. recently. That's kind of where they dog's number so yeah Brent Key's done a fantastic job very happy for their fans even though I can't stand that but yeah congratulations there bumblebees um moving on to the armed forces bowl with Lockheed Martin versus the JMU Dukes and the Air Force Falcons again all Antonio wants to do is just hang out with Jerry Jones and support the troops so it's no brainer while we were going there he was a little upset he wanted to get a Frank Signetti a Kurt Signetti autograph for Frank Sigetti saying, sorry, you got fired from pit bro. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kurt Signetti wasn't there. And frankly, James Madison looked like they didn't want to be there. Um, it was, I was for as good of a program in the Air Force is built. I was a little disappointed in James Madison, the way they kind of ended this season. You know, they had the magical run. They got their bowl eligibility, despite the fact that the NCAA was trying to keep it away from them. But the fact that they finished the season with kind of just a really lackluster effort, like Jordan McLeod played one of his worst games of the season. Like he still threw for three touchdowns, but just optically it didn't look like the same James Madison that we'd seen. It seemed like, you know, Kurt Signetti might have been a little bit of the secret sauce that really had this team believing, a galvanizing force, if you will. And I do think that, you know, as they replace him with Bob Chesney, I do think that the program is in good hands going forward. But I think it was a disappointing end to what could have been a really, you know, kind of one of those stories that make us love college football. Like this team went 12 and one. If they had won this game, they, you know, the transition that they made from FCS to FBS. So to end it like this with a loss to an Air Force team that frankly had been who basically lived into this game, they finished the end of the season very poorly. I thought it was a real opportunity for James Madison, and I think it was a missed opportunity when you when it was all said and done. Yeah, I got two thoughts for me on our next game. Um, for a while there, Air Force was kind of a contender to maybe win the group mm-hmm. of five, and they got decimated with injuries, kind of limped into this. But um, I don't think we ever give Troy Callahan the credit he deserves as a head coach. Like he's been like courted by other 
bigger jobs, which kind of makes you wonder in the same vein with like Jeff Monken, like maybe they're just running a triple option because that's what they have available. Cause uh, you know, the line meet can't be that big. They got to be kind of lean. So they got to run something that allows them to succeed. Cause otherwise it's going to be just some bad air raid football. So I really like Troy Calhoun, but I guess really the other thing there is um, with Bob Chesney coming in at JMU, if Bob Chesney was a car dealership, what type of uh, car would it be? Is it Bob Chesney Chevrolet? <laughs> what is it? Uh, I think it's uh, uh, it seems like a Jeep man to me. I think it's Bob Chesney Jeep Chrysler. I think that's where you got to get <laughs> Bob Chesney Hummer. <laughs> oh my god! Yes. Yeah. I don't know why I think like he's just he's he's not a used car salesman. He's a car salesman. That's right. He's he's high end on this baby. He's high end. He sells you a luxury automobile for a luxury family. Years. <laughs> so we're gonna move on to the one bowl. You just you and Antonio have some explaining to do. I lost touch with you guys in the guaranteed rate bowl there. You know, in the West Coast, I believe that was in Phoenix. I think is that sound yeah. right? Yeah, it was in it's Phoenix. I know there was internet issues in Virginia, but Antonio, you guys got kicked out. What happened? Yeah, so there's a reason we're not going to the Fiesta Bowl on New Year's Day, and that's because I don't think we're welcome back in Phoenix anytime soon. Um, We saw Barry Odom, and we got a little too excited, and Antonio rushed the field, and then the Kansas Jayhawk tried to stop him. We ended up in a fight. With I, I mean, I, I would, I would contest that I was just an innocent bystander in this. I don't know. I may have blacked out and thrown a punch or two. The drinks were flowing in Phoenix as they often do. And, you know, as this game was a shootout, we basically got into a shootout of fist with the Kansas Jayhawk and we ended up, you know, spending the night in the, in the drunk tank in Phoenix. And I decided to go to Virginia where I could get away from the internet where Antonio just joined you on the rest of the holiday tour. So I would like to apologize to all of the Antonio fans out there that I got us detained in Phoenix, Arizona. Two thoughts with that. Uh, number one, that's going to get you a raise because our CF, CEO, Zach Best is a case day long. So that's great. <laughs> great spirits. We'll talk about his, his team's bowl game here in a little bit. But I, I really appreciate the fact that you and Antonio basically recreated a fairy tale of New York shortly after the passing of Shane McGowan. You know, he loved Christmas. He was born on that day. The man had no teeth, but he loved him some Christmas. And they, you know, Antonio didn't have teeth either. So that was basically, you know, a fairy tale in Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, tales old as time, some might say. <laughs> well, that was wonderful. But um, we also went on to... Went a little bit further west to the Holiday Bowl for USC Louisville. Uh, we thought there was going to be a lot of tears, but um, the bird's teeth were the ones that were crying. Uh, USC looked really good without Caleb Williams. <laughs> kind of makes you wonder. So I think I'm trying to remember if it was a couple weeks ago or when when exactly it was. But I talked about the idea that when we were talking about Lincoln Riley and his you know viability, what he needed to do to get this USC program on track, I wondered with someone like Will Howard coming into the program and what we saw from Miller Moss in this game, who set a USC record for touchdown passes in a bowl game with six. Um, if playing within the structure of Lincoln Riley's offense was what he needed, because Caleb Williams, his superpower is out of structure. When he gets out of the pocket, when he's able to freelance and create, that's when he's he individually is at his best. But I don't think that's when the Lincoln Riley offense is at its best. We watch, you know, you watch a guy like a Baker Mayfield 
And yes, he used his mobility at the college level to succeed at Oklahoma and Lincoln Riley's offense. But at the same time, when that Oklahoma, Oklahoma offense was at its best was when Baker Bayfield was looking at his first and second read in the pocket and just firing the ball downfield, just chunk play after chunk play. And that's what we saw Miller Moss do to this Louisville defense, Louisville defense that was one of the best in the ACC this season. So I do wonder if, if it's Will Howard, if it's Miller Moss, whoever is at quarterback at USC next season, I wonder if just playing within the structure of Lincoln Riley's offense is actually going to benefit the program. And on top of that, there were some videos that came out after the game of USC players celebrating, talking about we're a team now, we're a team now. And you have to wonder if like the the stardom of Caleb Williams kind of had a negative effect on this entire team, top to bottom. They they low key hated him. I think they. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I think they hated his guts, and I think the team who drafts him is going to hate him too. So, yeah, maybe good, good job, Bears and Commanders. You're getting a Jeff George. <laughs> a Jeff George Christmas. Uh, oh, yeah. man. But uh, I do wonder, though, like, is Miller Moss going to transfer? He looked pretty good. I think they're going to get Will Howard. Honestly, like, roll with Miller Moss, go like eight, go like nine and three, make the playoff. That would mm-hmm. be pretty cool. So, you know, maybe maybe that would, like, change my tone a little bit on Lincoln Riley as opposed to being a transfer portal whore, for lack of a better word. No, absolutely. I think that I don't know what Miller Moss is going to do. I would suspect that USC might, you know, shove a little bit of the NIL money his way because Will Howard has not been necessarily the picture of health in his college career. So having a backup who – clearly can run Lincoln Riley's system with the talent around him at USC is going to be valuable for that team if they do land, end up, you know, officially getting a Will Howard commitment in the portal. So I do think that keeping Miller Moss is actually a really valuable thing, especially with Malachi Nelson already already in the portal. Yeah, I would say so. I would just, I keep both, you know, two Christmases, just like <laughs> two Christmases there in Arizona. We remember the Alamo Bowl, right, with Arizona, Oklahoma, Antonio, he was, you know, all about trying to get Frank Harris elected to Congress. I'm like, I don't think he's old enough. He's like, he'll be old enough when he get when I when I when I tell him he's old enough. Age is just a number. You can just make it up. You know, since a man who's been drinking since he was 13. <laughs> um, yes, Arizona is in fantastic spot. They're going to be fantastic in the new Big 12, beating Oklahoma on the way out. I we would not shock me if Arizona's playing in Arlington next year. They're that good. No, absolutely. I mean, Noah Fafita is still young, still has, I think, two years of eligibility left. So they're, and they're, uh, Tatori, uh, I can't pronounce his name, but McMillan, the wide receiver, they clearly have a great connection. I think Jacob Cowing is going to the NFL. So that's a big loss for them in the passing game. But the big thing that came that I had coming into this game was, and why I picked Arizona to win was, Arizona's defense ended up being one of the more underrated units in the country. They were nails, and that's why they were able to compete so well in the Pac-12 once they, te- you know, once they had more stability on offense with Fafita taking over for Jaden Delora. Going up against as, as high as you and I both are on the potential of Jackson Arnold, this was his first career start, really his first meaningful reps that he's taken in college football. And doing so against this Arizona defense was never going to be an easy task, and we saw that. Jackson Arnold turned the ball over three times in this game. I still think you have to be high if you're on Jackson Arnold's potential. If you are an Oklahoma fan, you know, the first, the first taste of college football action as a true freshman being against this Arizona team, being in a, you know, the Alamo Bowl is one of the bigger non New Year six bowl games. So a big environment. I do think it was a tall ask for such a young kid who does not have any experience, but I think that we saw. 
it wasn't a complete disaster show from Jackson Arnold, despite playing that defense. Like he played, he had his moments and he had his, you know, high end flashes that you want to see from a player that young that's going to take over the offense, which we obviously know because Oklahoma essentially forced Dylan Gabriel back into the portal so they could hand the reins to Jackson Arnold. So I think that honestly, I look at this game and I see two, two, two programs where I am very confident in the hands that they are in moving forward. I think Oklahoma, the trepidation you have against about Oklahoma is the transition to the SEC, but I don't think it's necessarily Jackson Arnold or even Brent Venables for that matter. I think it's that, you know, their, their level of competition is going to be raised and they haven't recruited at the level that a Texas has their biggest rival going to the SEC with them. So I think by comparison, you have to be worried about Oklahoma there. But I think in terms of the personnel, the talent and the transition that the each team, each program has gone through recently, I think you have to feel confident in both of them that they're in the right hands. I really like the transition of Arizona to the Big 12 because like, you know, you're leaving schools like Oregon and Washington behind from the Pac-12. And the Big 12 you're going to doesn't have Oklahoma or Texas, although you beat Oklahoma, so that, that's kind of a big point. But, you know, you're up there with the upper crust of that league now with the Utahs, you know, with Oklahoma State, K-State, Kansas, Iowa State, maybe some of the Texas schools as well. So I think they're in a fantastic spot. I like what Brent Venables is doing. He certainly built off of what he did, you know, his first year. Again, this is only his second year as a head coach, so – Give him some credit. He's certainly doing a better job than Mario Cristobal is doing in Miami. Mm-hmm. But I think with Oklahoma, the big thing that I worry about is you're going from the best school in your old conference historically to basically being Auburn. But in the new SEC, being basically Auburn or Florida, maybe LSU on a good day, that's good enough to get you the playoff more years than not. So I think Oklahoma's in a pretty good spot there. And um, it's you know it's also in a pretty good spot. Um, Tyler from Spartanburg. Uh, we also think that maybe uh, Antonio's uh, secret uh, uh, pen name or screen name or whatever, because I don't think Clemson's lost since Tyler from Spartanburg called Dabo. They went down to Mark Stoops' the second home in Jacksonville, won the Gator Bowl. Dabo was celebrating like you know he won Nam. <laughs> Nobody wins, no lose. Yeah, I mean that's kind of my feeling for this, like. I thought I so I thought Clemson was going to win this game. However, I thought it was going to be a de- very different game than what we saw. 38-35 was not the final score I had in mind looking at this game. I picked the under 47 and a half on stacking the box because I thought that Clemson's defense would be able to shut out shut down a Kentucky offense that frankly we hadn't seen a whole lot from this entire season. So, I actually come away from this game with a little bit of concern for t- for Clemson, more so than happy for them going down to Jacksonville and getting the win. Because what we saw from Clemson, we know that this offense with Cade Klubnick and Will Shipley, depending on if Will Shipley returns or not, but whoever Phil Maffa, whoever is playing running back, whoever the weapons are for this team, this offense has been wildly inconsistent, particularly this season, even with their recent run. And the strength of the team, as it has been for a very long time, has been the defense. Yes, the offense has been more consistent than it has been recently in previous years, but the defense has been the one driving force. And for them to go up against this Kentucky team, yes, they had some opt-outs, but you expect Clemson to be like a Georgia, like an Alabama, where you're turning over to high-end talent. They don't have that. And I think this goes back to the point that we've made a million times about Dabo. 
you got to hit the transfer portal, man, because your depth is now being tested to where you don't have the same level of depth on the defensive side of the ball that you once did. And so you have to start hitting the portal if you want to get Clemson back to, you know, to that level. And I think that, you know, when we talk about that, we talk about wide receiver, we talk about offensive line, the deficiencies that Clemson has had on offense. But I think it also comes down to the depth that you have on your, when it comes to your strength on the defensive side of the ball as well. It's kind of weird to think about it from this perspective, but Clemson's floor is essentially Kentucky's ceiling, and that's where they've met right here. Yeah. He went to Kentucky thinking to improve his life, and like a lot of people who go to Kentucky, that didn't happen. <laughs> he bet on the ponies, and the ponies let him down. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's why you at uh, Jacksonville. You know, an opportunity to reinvent yourself. You know, bathe in the St. John's, come back alive. Probably you come out of there, your skin's teal, and uh, you you start. You can only say one word, and and Tony <laughs> only said one word the entire time down there, which was Duval. <laughs> Speaking of the uh, the tattoo, Antonio wanted to get his chest. It was just Duval with eight U's, <laughs> and the hashtag for defense. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> he would have gotten the. Uh, the Jaguars emblem there too, you know, like you see on Twitter or the X, and he's like, yes. would have been extra. He's like not in Duval, or which basically sounded just like Duval. But yes, after you know going in there, it just you know treating his body like a sketch pad. Uh, he he came back. He you you and he came back to um, you know your old stomping ground, my current stomping ground of Atlanta, Georgia. We went there for the Peach Bowl and. Uh, you know, Ole Miss, Penn State, it was kind of cold, but he was all excited about one thing, Claremont Lounge. <laughs> the Claremont Lounge, and uh, we ended up uh, outside the varsity at 4 a.m. with Antonio <laughs> banging on the door. He's like, what do you have? What do you have? <laughs> and uh, so we had to get him out of that situation before we ended up in the slammer for the second time on his big holiday. Yeah, um, he goes up to me. He's like, "What do you? what's your paycheck? And it's like I told him, he's like, I want you to withdraw that amount from your ATM. I'm like, I don't have that in the bank. He's like, just do it. Just so do it. he's like, he thought we were going to Magic City. No, we were going to Claremont Lounge at the varsity. Because <laughs> we know that's how Antonio rolls. He tries to be sophisticated, but in reality, he's just a degenerate like the rest of us. Absolutely, yeah. There's the sophistication is a facade. Okay, so we have one more for Antonio's big holiday before the national championship. Where are we going? New Year's Day. Uh, there's no other place we could go, but to potentially Kurt Ferentz's last college football game, if, uh, you know, the rumors, the underlying rumblings are to be believed, we're going to the Citrus Bowl. We're going to Camping World Stadium. We're going to watch Iowa and Tennessee play in a matchup that if you, you know, you think about Josh Heupel in Tennessee, you think this is the most contrasting styles of matchup. Actually, it's just going to be two teams that can't play offense. <laughs> Yeah. Um, isn't Nico going to be starting this game for the Vols? Praise the Lord, yes. I, I'm glad that we do not have to watch the end of Jay Milton's career. And uh, Antonio has dropped a little uh, little word in my ear that he is really excited to see this 6'5 former volleyball player throw the ball around because in Antonio's mind, he sees himself as a 6'5 volleyball player. <laughs> Closer to 5'6 and 6'5, but I appreciate it. It's sir. The one thing he did tell me that he was a little upset about Joe Milton not being there is he wanted to see 
he wanted to see Joe Milton rifle Von Wienerschnitzels at Brian Ferentz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is Brian Ferentz's last game. I did It's for sure his last game. I forgot about that. <laughs> this, is, this is Brian's song being played on a pickle. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, and we are back. Um, you know what the Associated Mind Morning Jacket song is, right? Oh, of course. Touch me, I'm going to scream part two. <laughs> Absolutely. We are going to be screaming, and it's mostly going to be at Brian Farron, so I'm 100% certain of that. So I guess before we move on to some God-tier Dookie excellence, and then maybe some along December to wrap the show. It's been a long show, but a lot of stuff. Maybe a few distractions. I am cat sitting, and there have been cats running around here, so... <laughs> If you hear a little rustle like, and little bells, that's what's going on here. If I'm, I'm coughing a bunch too, because allergies are great. That that's that's life. Living the best, you know. Got to got to close out 23 at the bang, dude. Um, <laughs> hopefully I don't die. But um, I guess the question I had about Tennessee is: Can they make the playoff next year? And then I guess for Iowa, what becomes of the Hawkeyes if this is fair, the Ferentz's last rodeo? So for Tennessee, I do think that they are kind of in that dark horse conversation for the playoff. It obviously a lot of it depends on Nico and how quickly he comes along. But I think that we, we, I mean, there's no reason not to trust in Heupel's offensive system. Like Joe Milton was a bad fit. He's been a bad fit and he's a bad fit in most offenses. Let's be clear about that. But Nico, I think is a more cerebral player that will really thrive in what Heupel likes to do with the quick reads, with the spreading the field. I think that that really suits his game based on what I've seen and read from him, read about him as a recruit. So I think that's going to really suit them. I think the big key though for them being a playoff contender is continuing what we saw this year on defense because with the offensive with the offense struggling Tennessee still went 8 and 4 because of the strength of their defense. The defense took a huge leap forward from what we saw last year where it was kind of their Achilles heel where yeah they'd score 45 but they'd allow 50 and I think we saw a real shift from that. So I think that if they can continue even being just an average defense you don't even have to be a top tier defense. If they can just can like keep the Keep the needle from dropping below E on defense. I think that Nico is the right guy to make them a dark horse playoff contender. On the flip side of that with Iowa, we've talked about the possibility of if Ference does retire, Mark Stoops coming in. And I think that is the right type of hire name to make. And I think that is the right type of hire to, for as good as I, consistently good as Iowa has been, winning 10 games, consistently being in the Big Ten West, like, uh, championship conversation to where they're going to go to Indianapolis and play in the Big Ten title game. I don't think Iowa's ever really touched its ceiling because I think that the defense, you're able to recruit well because of the defense reputation that they've built with Phil Parker. And I think if Mark Stoops were to come, not only would he have you know his defensive mind, but I think he would be smart enough to keep Phil Parker in the building. With the defense and special teams still being at a high level, I think that Stoops is a smart enough recruiter and a smart enough guy to hire an offensive mind like a Liam Cohen, not saying Liam Cohen would come with him, but like a Liam Cohen to elevate what Iowa is doing on offense. And if you elevate what Iowa is doing on offense to even an average or slightly above average level, that's a sleeping giant. I legitimately think so because I know it, it starts with getting better talent into the building, but at the same time, once you start doing that and once you start having a system that doesn't absolutely hamstring everyone on that side of the ball. I think that Iowa could legitimately be an 11, 12 win team. Like I think they have that type of potential, even in the new big 10. I was just thinking right now, like, like Iowa's never hit its ceiling. If Iowa hit its ceiling, it could be Michigan state. Basically the, one of the best teams that can't win a national championship, but like is right there. 
We've seen Michigan State under Mark D'Antonio and even briefly under Mel Tucker get to that level. Iowa has never really gotten there under Craig Ferentz. Maybe Mark Stoops can get them there. I don't know. But, yeah, they certainly need to change. I think the fact that Stoops played for Hayden Fry, yes, I guess he, I guess um, Ferentz was still around that part on Fry's staff, but like maybe just kind of a little bit of a reboot with saying, you know, going even more into the past, which would be very Iowa. But, yes, Orlando, Iowa, Vols. Let's go, baby. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, Cheez It is one of has been one of the best sponsors, and now they're sponsoring the Citrus Bowl, so we get all the Cheez It goodness that we all we all love and crave during bowl season. You know, why are all the uh, the food brands going down to Orlando? Some God tier Dookie excellence. K State ate the Pop Tart. Man, watching that unfold like was, I mean, what a time to be alive. I felt like we were watching like. The children's book, the children's book version of the Wicker Man, basically with a pop tart. It, I mean, it was in terms of just college football stupidity at its finest. This was the peak of it. He comes out of a toaster to start the game, and then he's dancing in the end zone. He's slapping the rap, the ref in the butt. He's absolutely having a time and all because he's excited to go back in the toaster and then eventually be eaten by the Kansas state wildcats. Um, I hope they saved a piece for our uh, boss and fan sided overlord Zach best, because I know he probably wants a piece of that pop tart, but I will say if you'll notice in the after effects of the picture of the eaten pop tart, there was still one eye left, and I'm hoping that means he's regenerating and we'll get the strawberry Pop-Tart back next year. <laughs> you know, it'll be some very uh, Anakin, Skywalker, Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader stuff after falling into like, the lava pit. That would be, <laughs> but um, I, I don't remember like what song that was playing while he was going in, but I, I saw like one mashup where it's My Hero by Foo Fighters, which, yeah. ties, into, which ties into one of our favorite scenes from one of our favorite movies. The other guys when uh the rock and Samuel L. Jackson jump off the roof to aim for the bushes. Aim for the bushes, baby. <laughs> the Pop Tart Bowl may not be the same level as like a New Year's six or the playoff, but it shows that you can never have too many bowl games. It's an opportunity to have fun. Again, it's about the kids. And whoever uh is a C whoever's in charge of marketing for a Pop Tart needs to get like a thousand ten thousand dollar x rays whatever it is like basically add a zero to whatever you make that's what you need to make oh absolutely they made pop tarts so much money i think there was someone who said i was ari wasserman of the athletic who tweeted out the same thing that the pop tart marketing director needs a raise because he hasn't eaten a pop tart in a decade and now he's about to go to the store and get some pop tarts because he wants one so bad so i mean absolutely deserves a raise and talking about the regeneration of the pop tart I'm going to compare it to uh, Recyclops from The Office when Dwight is the recycling thing, and every year he just <laughs> evolves into something more uh, more sinister. And I hope that by, like, 2026, we have the Pop-Tart just running on the field and just tackling someone from one of the teams. Two Ari Wasserman thoughts. One, I mean, the fact he hasn't had a Pop-Tart, like, he's eaten a lot of other stuff, mostly Domino's cheesy bread. You know, God bless. God bless Ari. I love that man. That man is... <laughs> That means our spirit animal on this show, one of which, you know, with, with Petros Papadakis. I wonder his thoughts would have been about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but also, you know, you never see Ari Wasserman and the Pop-Tart in the same spot, so you never know. Oh, you? I mean, maybe maybe he's all in on this. Maybe it's a giant conspiracy. <laughs> Who could say? 
man. But there's like two other things that are kind of God tier Dookie excellence here. Unfortunate for your team, but good for Neil Brown. He got a Mayo bath. Uh, the man's seat was hotter than hell, and he gets mm-hmm. Dallas Mayo. And he's he's basically melting there, like listening to Jim Nance call the Masters like Mayo on ham. Yeah, uh, unfortunate game for the Tar Heels. Not going to say I had high hopes once that uh, once Drake May and Tez Walker decided to opt out. That was basically the only thing that UNC had going for them this season. Omarion Hampton did play, but uh, played a little sparingly. So, yeah, wasn't really uh, enthused for the Tar Heels in that game. But definitely shouts to Neil Brown because, I mean, going from the hot seat to a 9-4 and finish on the season, that's something you can really build off of. I'm not sure necessarily that – it is sustainable, but I do think that there is a higher chance of sustainability than we ever thought. Like we didn't think Neil Brown was going to be able to finish the season and getting and finishing the season being, you know, doused in Mayo. You got to hand it to the guy. Like that's a, that's an impressive finish to the season, to the year. You know, the, the Mayo works. We saw Shane Beamer, you know, last year have a really fantastic season, you know, beating uh, Tennessee and Clemson. Uh, Maryland looked really good this year with Mike Loxley. So, it's hard to you know measure what possibly could happen with WVU, but again, with the new Big Twelve, maybe they are a top three team in that league. Maybe that's good enough to get them into the playoff, or at least be in serious consideration for that. But uh, we we talk about this a lot. We always say that realignment's a scary thing. We always mm-hmm. said that like you never know what's going to happen. And West Virginia was kind of like a you know like a horror story of what goes wrong. But with the Big Twelve changing again, maybe the the years are finally in a good position where like maybe they kind of get back to what they were under Rich Rod in that era of Mountaineers football. So really good time to be a WVU fan. And uh, also one more Craig bowl. Congratulations, man. Way to end a hell of a coaching career out there with the pokes in Wyoming. Yeah. They, they played uh, your boy, Jason Candle and the Toledo Rockets sans Daquan Finn. And uh turns out that when you don't have, you know, a, a quarterback who is better than every other player in the Mac that you might struggle a little bit, but honestly that was an ugly game in the Arizona bowl. Uh, my God, 16 to 15, but shouts to Craig bowl going out. I mean, you know, you talk about a walk-off victory. It doesn't get more walk-off than literally kicking the game winning field goal as time expires to end your career. Like that's a, that's a storybook type ending. So that's, that's good stuff out there. And, uh, and Laramie, I love to see that. Love to see that, but you know it's been a long December for a few other teams. Cody's apparently a really big Counting Crows fan. Uh, me too. It's been a it comes as quite a shock. But um, <laughs> we're each going to rattle off three different teams. We think it's been a long December, and we'll debate if there's a reason to believe. Cody, you go first. What team you want to talk about? Right. So I'm going to start with some uh, program and head coach that we talked about a lot, but the Arkansas Razorbacks, it was a long December because they had to watch all these teams play in bowl games and they did not. There was no bowl game in Fayetteville this year, but Sam Pittman is returning for 2024. We both really like Sam Pittman. He's, you know, comes from the uh, Kirby Smart Georgia coaching tree. I think that the offensive court, we've talked about the offensive coordinator hire with Kendall Bryles leaving late in the process really put them in a, unadvantageous spot to hire Danny Enos. Now they're bringing back Bobby Petrino, which could go horribly or it could work beautifully because for all of Petrino's faults, for all of the disgrace and shame he brought to the Arkansas program, those Arkansas teams were pretty damn good. (laughs) So like there is some upside there. 
And I do, they've, they've done a lot of good work in the transfer portal. I think moving on from KJ Jefferson is an exceedingly positive thing for them. I think that it kind of run its course. I mean, it feels, it feels like he's been there for a solid decade. So I think it was time for a change there. And so I'm feeling optimistic that Arkansas is going to be a bowl team next year. I think that they could be a six, seven win team, potentially eight if they, everything breaks right for them. Do you have that same t- type of optimism or do you think that? Sam Pittman's hot seat is not going to go away and that he may not be around for 2025. It's getting hot in here. I don't like this at all, but I I am intrigued by like Arkansas being something different. Maybe it'll be, you know, a new flavor, but you know, even if it's a hot seat, it's some, you know, it's some smoked hog. So it'll probably taste pretty good. You know, I can't take my eyes <laughs> off it. My nose is just drawn to it. And even if it is like a dumpster fire, it's some like fire marshal bill stuff like Chad Morris. I mean, I'm intrigued. So, you know, I, I can't really be worse. So, yeah, I think they'll probably be better, but not maybe to the level that everyone is hoping for. But, yeah, they'll be back in the ball game. That's kind of where I feel with that. And the same thing kind of goes for mine with the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Obviously, you got the, the, the Johnny Cash of high school football, uh, Dylan Raiola flipping from Georgia after flipping from Ohio State after playing at Buford to go play for, you know, his father and uncle's alma mater. This is a big step up for UNL. The transfer portal is working. The NIL is working. I just don't know if Marcus Satterfield is working, but I feel that Dylan Raiola and really with Matt Rule, again, Matt Rule's teams usually suck year one, but like year two and three, they really turn it on. I think this is, I think uh, Nebraska is going to be going to a bowl game uh, they're going to be really grateful for that. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I do think Nebraska makes a bowl game, but I do think that you mentioned Marcus Satterfield. I think that that's kind of like the next iteration of what Nebraska is going to do. I think this year we're going to see Rayola and I like for all of his well-traveledness, I guess we'll say uh, he's an immensely talented quarterback, immensely talented prospect. And he may not be as polished, but I think that Matt Rule and the way Matt Rule builds a culture, I think that that's going to actually really benefit Dylan Rayola, especially early in his career. So I think we see a lot of good things and a lot of improvement and a lot of the deficiencies that Nebraska had. But I do think that we're going to see like a lot of meat left on the bone. Like I think this is a team that is going to have a chance to go as an eight or nine win team, but probably ends up winning six or seven games. And I think that's going to call, uh, I'll end up being the call for a change at offensive coordinator to get Marcus Satterfield out there, which I think is the next you know step that they need to really take to get back even closer to what Nebraska used to be to being one of the you know premier programs in college football. I hope they play the Cinnabon Bowl. <laughs> I don't know what stadium it is, but they can just play in a bunch of mud. It'll be great. Who's your next team? So my next team for this, uh, Boston College. So we saw Boston College make a bowl game under Jeff Halfley this year, which another guy who was on the hot seat coming into this year, like Neil Brown, and really turned things around when Thomas Castellanos took over. And then they went out and, you know, they beat SMU, who was a team that had an argument to be the group of five representative in the New Year's Six. And they went into Fenway Park and handed them a 23 to 14 win or loss, handed SMU a 23 14 loss. And, I wonder, so that make, that makes them, you know, seven and six finish on the year. But I wonder if there's more upside with a guy like Castellanos. We've seen Boston College when they find the right quarterback. Granted, Castellanos is a different brand of quarterback than we've seen in like your Matt Ryans and things of that nature. 
with his mobility. But I wonder if finding Castellanos really unlocks something because we know Halfley is a good talent identifier and he's going to put his players with that talent in the right position. We know that he is going to, you know, cook up some things on the offensive side of the ball. And I wonder if finding a unique talent like Castellanos is the right guy to kind of close the talent gap that Boston college is going to have not being in a recruiting rich area, being in that mid potentially being in that middle tier of the ACC. I wonder if they can kind of emerge as the best of the, you know, tier two teams in the ACC next year as Castellanos matures with a year of experience under his belt and as, you know, happily starts to put a little bit more talent around him. I don't know if they play, but between Georgia Tech and BC, like one of them is going to be really, really good. Mm-hmm. And as a little comment side story, uh, this is the third Castellanos who's been in my life in some capacity. Nick Castellanos, because he's with the Phillies, drives me mad, but he also, you know, drives the ball to deep left when uh, Tom Perdomit's <laughs> calling games. But, um, so when I was playing baseball, yeah, one of my coaches' names was Chuck Castellanos, but Castellanos is how he would say it. Okay, he was he 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 was one of one. Uh, Chucky, he would he would like show up to games. He would wear like a Punisher T-shirt, listen to ACDC in the car, and he would just say, "Quit being a baby and go play hard." <laughs> uh, he, did, he did all the uh, surround sound stereos, like home theaters for all the Falcons players. So the man was wealthy, but. He was one of one. He got us fired up. And more importantly, he he let me pitch. He's like, you want to pitch? Go figure it out. And uh, I always appreciated that. He was the guy who's like, yeah, just go figure it out. That was kind of his thing. And that's kind of what BC is doing. They're just kind of figuring it out. And yeah. I love to – let's see. My next one is uh, Miami. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I still kind of think that Mario Cristobal's Ball's brains – um, I think he had a brain transplant from uh, Frank Reich, who, you know, just they do they do like lobotomies and they switch them out and they, they tie it together with a silly string because that that's clear how clearly how it works. But um, if Miami gets a big guy in the portal like a DJU, Cam Ward, probably not Will Howard, somebody who's slightly better than Tyler Van Dyke, maybe they can get back to being like nine and three and it'll be good. But um, it's got to happen or else he gone. Yeah, I I think Miami is an very interesting situation. I think the one thing that I come back to is, and it's it's related to like him take, not taking a knee in that Georgia Tech, that loss to Georgia Tech. But Cristobal has to realize that he is there to be a recruiter because you look at Miami, they're still recruiting at a very high level. The talent that Miami is going to have is not going to be an issue, even if they miss on Cam Ward. Because I my gut tells me that Cam Ward is going to end up at Florida State over Miami just because of the position that that program is in in relation to Miami. I think it's a better fit. I think it makes a lot of sense for Nervell to transition from Jordan Jordan Travis to Cam Ward. I think that just is a better fit. But whether it's a DJU, whether it's, you know, even a Malachi Nelson, you know, Miami would, you know, back up uh, the Brinks truck for that. I do think that Cristobal just needs to take his, in terms of game management, in terms of what he's, you know, play calling, in terms of things of that nature – I think he needs to be even more of a CEO type than he already is. I think he needs to be the most hands-off head coach in America in everything except for recruiting. And if we don't see that, I just I have a hard time seeing Miami turn it around because this has kind of been Cristobal's MO, underperformance in relation to the talent. We saw it at Oregon. Like he had Justin Herbert, who is one of the most talented quarterbacks in the NFL right now, and 
he hamstrung him for four years at, or three years at Oregon. And the team never really reached what it should have been in terms of its ceiling. And we've seen it with Miami the past couple of years. Like they're just not like they consistently hamstring themselves. So I am not optimistic for Miami unless we see some drastic changes in the way Cristobal runs his program, particularly on game day. You know, you got to channel your inner Jason Garrett and just clap, clap, mm-hmm. clap. And I can't wait for DJU to turn pro and we see him on Sunday night football and he goes, DJU, it's all about the U. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like, like you play clips in an Oregon state. Shut up, dude. Uh, but uh, that would be something. What's your last one, Cody? So that- after, you know, two more mid tier programs going with the heavy hitter, the USC Trojans. And I think that I might, granted I have, and I think we all have been tricked by bowl season before, but I think what I saw in the holiday bowl really changed my tune on what my outlook for USC is. I think that what I said earlier about the idea of getting a quarterback in the building, like a Will Howard or even Miller Moss, if he, you know, is forced into action, who just runs Lincoln Riley's system. I think we've, uh, what we've seen from Caleb Williams the past few years, and we put so much on his plate as a quarterback and what his value was to USC that we've started to undervalue what Lincoln Riley has done at every stop in his career to this point as an offensive mind, as a schematic mind, schematic mastermind even. And I think that when you get a quarterback who's just going to come in and run that system, USC has the skill position talent. I think that getting rid of Alex Grinch is obviously a huge thing. And I think we saw that against Louisville. Jeff Brom is a great offensive head coach. And that defense, yes, they allowed 28 points, but they simplified things. They said, see ball, hit ball. Like they simplify things. And I think that's what we're going to see uh, with D'Anton Lynn coming in, who obviously milked a lot of talent out of UCLA. And I think USC has the ability to get the most out of its defense, which we have not seen in the two years that Lincoln Riley has been at USC. So I think with those two factors, I think that USC, I don't know how well they're going to compete in the Big Ten because I think that is going to be a tough transition for them. But I do wonder if this is a team that could shock shock us and be like a 10-2. and two. You know, I think that we could see a bigger step forward than we might have initially been thinking with the way situationally things are going to fall for the program. I love the uh, Danton Lynn higher for USC. I think that changes the game. I'd be in favor of them picking up Will Howard. I think that would be good. I'm a little more optimistic now, just seeing how well the team played versus Louisville in the Holiday Bowl. Really, I'm just I was just kind of been done with the whole Caleb Williams thing, you know, ever since he lost to Utah twice last year. This yeah. year was challenging to watch. I just feel it's kind of become like addition by subtraction. I think USC can be a lot better but I really wish they were playing the Pac-12 next year. Not just for certain reasons, but I think the transition to the Big Ten is not going to be seamless for them. And then my final one is LSU. Year three has always been the year under Brian Kelly. That's when it took off at Grand Valley State. That's when it took off at Central Michigan. That's when it took off at Cincinnati. That's when it took off at Notre Dame. I think they they still have Garrett Nussmeyer, but I think they picked up A.J. Swan from Vanderbilt in the portal as their quarterback. We've always kind of liked him. I think they're going to be a lot better because again, then again, like Jaden Daniel was was kind of a cast off mm-hmm. at Arizona State. He won the Heisman Trophy. Not saying AJ Swan's going to win the Heisman Trophy. God, can you imagine living in that world? Oh my god! But like we said, LSU has a very navigable schedule. If they win Magnolia, they may play Bama too. But like for just off the top top of my head, like 
LSC and Ole Miss, like whoever wins that game is in a really good position to get to Atlanta. If you get to Atlanta at this point, even if you lose, you're still probably making the playoff. It's all about getting that first round by. So, yeah, I'm very bullish on LSU next year. I think they're going to be fantastic. I, I'm i bullish on LSU as well. Not just the – like, Brian Kelly is perpetually one of the more underrated head coaches, probably because he has so many famous moments or infamous moments is probably the better way to phrase that, where he's kind of shot himself in the foot, most most notably throwing the ball 40 times in a hurricane in Raleigh, North Carolina. But uh, – I do think, like, I'm high on Garrett Nussmeyer. I also like A.J. Swan. So I think quarterback is going to be in good hands. We know that they're going to lose receiver talent, but LSU has kind of become a receiver factory. Like, they just, there's got the kids that they recruit in state are just, and do a good job of developing the receiver talent that they have. Like, Malik Neighbors was a high end recruit, but the player he was when he showed up at LSU and the player he's leaving going to the NFL as are two different players. And it is a, far better like he is a far better player and far better suited to be be an NFL game changer and so I'm I think that the offense is going to be in great shape the one obvious point of you know concern would be the defense but I think that Brian Kelly is a smart enough head coach that he recognizes that changes have to be made that they have to improve the talent on that side of the ball that they have to get back to being DBU and I think that he tried to solve that problem this past year in the transfer portal, and he struck out a lot. Like he brought in a former five star in Denver Harris, who barely saw the field for them. He had some personal off field issues, and now he's back in the transfer portal. So I do think that having more stability on the defensive side of the ball is actually just going to be, you know, having stability and not having that turnover, not having a revolving door, I think is going to be highly, highly beneficial for LSU in, in the 2024 season. So, and then you, like you mentioned, you look at the schedule. I think that. It's set up for LSU to really pop. And I also like think, you know, we're talking about all this. I think if we were in the 12-team playoff this year, we would have seen a bigger push for LSU to be one of the last te- last at-large teams to be in the playoff this year. But because, like, it wasn't a 12-team playoff conversation, we never really got into that. But I think that, you know, when it comes down to the debate of, you know, who are the uh, – see it would be the seven best at large teams if we do if we go to the five and seven model i think that we're going to be looking at a situation where it's like well maybe lsu you know based on their wins based on their close quality losses maybe they are you know one of these seven best at large teams that we could put in the playoff so i think that they're in a really advantageous spot going into the 12 team playoff era i would agree and i think we're in a very advantageous spot this was false start episode 36 a lot to unpack here, but obviously we got the national championship a little more than a week out. You know, the national semifinals are today, so that's that's a good time here. But, you know, it's a new year, same us. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at Bueller118. You can follow Cody at the Sizzle 20 You can follow us on CFB Fall Start. Um we have big plans for this year. And like Brian Kelly, we're just getting started. Yeah, we're, uh, and more importantly, we're a family here at Foster. <laughs> Hope you got to spend some time with your family. This is False Start.